just one. edit that out altogether? Can we just do the thing where we just like are having a conversation? We politely transition in. Like you want like a oh didn't see you there. <laughs> <laughs> I was just smiling. oh I didn't hear you there. It's it's great that you've you've arrived. Like we're Mister Rogers. Surprise! People are in our house watching us take off our shoes and changing from our our house shoes to our or from our work shoes to our house shoes and our work sweater to our house sweater. Peter, uh, oh, I was just cleaning a glass at ten forward. Is that the bar? <laughs> Yeah, yeah that actually, is. good job, Peter. Okay, thank you. I was just cleaning a glass at 10 forward. You know, drink. everyone tonight was drinking a lot of Synthahol. Oh, uh, yeah, wow. Look at this. Did someone buy the uh, Star Trek compendium of all Star <laughs> Trek information on the it side? Is, it, it is really stuck with me that they don't drink booze in space. They drink something that kind of tastes like hey, booze but doesn't get you loaded. Someone gets drunk in one of these things we watched. Uh, anyway, yeah, we, uh, so what is this? Well, normally Aaron, well, who's me, Aaron, I was drunk, and <laughs> Peter Moran. Why do you Moran. Say, what is this, like, like you found a new bug? Oh, hey, as long as I didn't see you there, I'm going to pretend you asked me the rhetorical question, what am I listening to? Well, <laughs> well, person who's wandered into our space, uh, you are listening to Start Track, which is a sister podcast to We Love to Watch, hosted by Aaron Armstrong, that's me, and Pete Moran, who's the other voice. Uh, who's been talking mostly at the, especially during the intro, uh, where he said hi, where I said hello, Pete, and then that person responded back. Um, and we have hosted a movie podcast called We Love to Watch, where we pick a movie uh, or p- pick a theme and do movies around that theme every month. And somewhere within th- three years of doing this podcast together, I found out that Peter had never seen anything Star Trek related, with the exception of the first to Abrams movies, and I, uh, one of my first obsessions and longer obsessions in my life was Star Trek. It was like my favorite thing in the world, especially around the Next Generation era, but I went back and uh, fell in love with the original series and ended up watching all of Deep Space Nine and uh, watched some of Voyager and Enterprise, uh, And but that's somewhere somewhere around uh, the run of those shows is where I kind of dipped out for a little bit, but, uh, you know, has still... Still always, you know, over the last, you know, basically 30 years of my life have dipped into uh, Next Generation episodes and all the movies and stuff like that. And so hearing Peter hadn't seen any of it, we decided to start a podcast, a side podcast called Star Trek, where we go through the series and the movies and introduce Peter to Star Trek. So that means that we went through uh, a lot of original series episodes uh, in in re- that were related to the movies uh, themselves as a way of introducing both the show. And the original six movies. We're in our fifth episode of the transition to Next Generation. So we did an episode introing Next Generation with about nine episodes we covered. We did Star Trek Generations. The last time you heard us... Oh, sorry. So I guess this is our fourth. Fourth Next Generation episode. Uh, last time you heard us, we were going through the Next Generation's kind of Borg arc. Uh, specifically around q and the best of both worlds and family. To kind of go through the arc of meeting the Borg... Uh, getting assimilated, Picard getting assimilated as Lacutus, and him kind of dealing with the after effects of this. And now can we're on. To- re- can I pause really quickly? Then? Sure. I was walking in my neighborhood because uh, I need to get out of my house in some way. Um, I was taking the dog on a walk, and I walked past someone's house, and their front windows were open. And I pointed at my wife. I said, "Oh, they're watching the Star uh, Star Trek episode Family. It's where Picard goes back to the family vineyard." And she was like. Did you just see two seconds of 
show in someone's window and were able to call out what episode it was and the name of the episode. And so you're getting divorced, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I'm recording this from behind my house. Uh... <laughs> uh, yeah. So, well, that is that is excellent. That is what happens with Star Trek. It's the one of the only series where I uh, memorized names of episodes and had uh, tons of books around. Uh, the, the production behind each uh, episode, mistakes, con- continuity mistakes that were made, trivia, uh, how it fits into an over overall chronology. And so this week we're doing um, the same type of thing. We're introducing uh, the, the eighth movie, the second Next Generation movie, Star Trek First Contact. We're going to cover that uh, in the back half of this episode. Uh, and we, as as always, gave Peter a couple episodes to watch his homework to help fill in parts of uh, Star Trek First Contact that he may not have known otherwise. Those two episodes that uh, I picked were uh, the Star Trek original series Metamorphosis, uh, which introduces Zephram Cochran, who is the inventor of Warp Drive. Uh, so Peter got to return a little bit after uh, after a three-episode absence to Kirk and Spock uh, and the gang. And, uh, and then we did uh, I, Borg. We'd actually... Planned to do um, – shoot, I'm forgetting the, the name of the episode. The one where – the sixth season episode where uh, Picard um, – where the Enterprise gets, take, so, t- gets taken over and Picard has to kind of be like a diehard in the vents to kind of show the action side of Picard. But as, as we were talking about it, I, Borg, felt more appropriate – um, as an introduction to this movie, especially yeah, uh, as it relates – More appropriate but more confounding. We'll get to that. Yeah, more appropriate as it's almost like that both both Iborg and First Contact almost did like a split sequel thing. What happens the next time that Picard runs into the Borg? Iborg poses one path and First Contact poses a very different path. And then Star Trek First Contact, which uh, at the time was the most successful financially Star Trek movie of all time at a worldwide box office uh, perspective until the Abrams reboot uh, is a movie that was kind of uh, hailed by critics as a return to form at the time uh, especially because star trek generations which is a movie uh, i love but kind of got mixed reviews since then it's kind of it, it has a memory as the good next generation movie but i think among uh fans like myself uh we feel it's a little more of a mixed bag uh just that it's it's a it's a good movie it shows a lot of cool things that the show was never really able to show but also starts the trend of next generation movies uh not understanding the next generation characters and making them mostly action movies starring data and Picard, and we are joined uh, by Marcus Jones, who has never been on this show uh, before. He's been on We Love to Watch. Marcus, thank you so much for coming on our show. Hey, dudes, uh, thank gr- you for having me. Yeah, it's great having you on. Now, what? How we'd like you to introduce ourselves to our uh, podcast uh, audience if they if they don't know who you are, but also uh, I'd like you. We ask every guest, like, what is your What's your history with Star Trek? Were you a lifelong fan? Did you watch a few of the movies? Are you a newbie kind of like Peter? We've had a whole mix of people with different Star Trek backgrounds. So, Marcus, why don't you introduce yourself and and tell us a little bit about what your history with Star Trek is and why you wanted to be on the First Contact episode? Uh, Well, uh, my name is Marcus Jones. Uh, I 
think I'm pretty much aligned up with your experience, Aaron, uh, based on the intros I've heard you say. Uh, definitely, since I was a kid, Star Trek was probably my first real big fandom, like even before, you know, Star Wars, comic books, anything like that. It was definitely uh, Star Trek. I definitely saw random episodes of the original series and TNG and syndication. Just whenever they would be on, I would watch them. Uh, but D Space Nine was definitely the first show that was like my show that I watched as it was coming out week to week because that started in what 93 so i would have been six years old at the time just kind of the right age to really start getting into it um, but of course i grew up watching the original series movies um and the reason i wanted to go for first contact was because it's the first star trek movie i ever saw in a theater i think i was still a little bit oh, okay. too young when generations came out i think i didn't see that till video but this the summer-ish i believe of 96 first time i got to see star trek in a movie theater so how how old were you then? Uh, I would have been nine years old. Okay. So yeah, my first my first Star Trek was uh, Undiscovered Country, and I would have been eight, which would have been ninety one. So mm-hmm. yeah, this came out when I was I guess thirteen. Yeah, so that seems about perfect. But you know, like I said, I, I was really into Deep Space Nine. I was with Voyager for the first season or two. That's something I used to watch with my grandmother when I was at her house uh, on nights it aired. Never really watched much of Enterprise. Uh, I still haven't watched Picard. I watched the first two seasons of Discovery and have a real love-hate relationship with it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and of course, when streaming services came around and Star Trek was available, I definitely revisited the original series, TNG, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, uh, and actually got a lot more appreciation for Voyager. But I did also read novels like you did. Uh, There was a Star Trek CCG customizable card game that I played. Oh, I played that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I actually still have some decks made. (laughs) Um, I I did get rid of all mine, uh, like an idiot with uh you know where you where you go through stages like i'm never gonna play toys again i can get rid of all this stuff and now of course things you'd like and i had a bunch of the star wars uh, and star trek ccg um and i think i i collected i had a ton uh i got into the star trek one first but all my friends that played those were playing the star wars one so i did get into that one but um i, I had way more of the star trek stuff in general but i think i played through what the third, the second expansion, I think, was the Q one, or maybe mm-hmm. through First Contact. They did a First Contact expansion. Yeah, they did. I that was, was probably at least fourth or fifth expansion, I believe. Um, but yeah, no, and it went on for a while, and there were a couple of different kinds of games. Uh, but that original one was a lot of fun. But I did play that and Star Wars and a ton of other CCGs around the time because I basically, you know, hung out in a comic book store and just played games with people for most did of my you read, early let me see years. did you read inquest magazine uh inquest i did not read okay that <laughs> was that was the ccg that was like the wizards of the coast for customizable card games marcus it's it's funny you mention all this stuff because i was uh a little too far for a kid to walk on their own from a comic book shop uh called graham crackers i think in naperville mm-hmm. illinois and so my mom would have to drive me um but my mom worked two jobs and my dad traveled like monday to friday basically um and he had that second family and he had well sorry he traveled to the second family the second friday and then that's why your mom had to work two jobs but uh pizza fridays to uh taco sundays uh, i got my dad um but uh he basically he um I basically uh, was like just a hair too far away from uh, a comic book shop. And anytime my mom dropped me off in there, I was like, 
this is the coolest place on the planet. Yeah. I mean, games in the middle of the store and they're yeah. doing all these cool adventures and they're talking about these cool stories. Cause when I was a little kid, I used to like write stories and I was like, wait, so like a dungeon master just tells stories to their friends and their friends have to pay attention. And occasionally they roll dice. That's mm-hmm. cool. Like that's a sort of like uh that's something that I wish I, I had like a little bit more access to as a kid. Cause like I would have been so in love with that stuff, but alas, like since none of my siblings, my older siblings were into card games or tabletop games, like all the stuff I'm admiring from a distance. Yeah. I had a lot of friends that were into the card games. I never really, I had one friend that was into a tabletop game, which I tried once. And I've told the story on one of our podcasts before, <laughs> but I was asked to not play again. <laughs> Because I didn't, I didn't quite understand it, and was and and like you, Peter, was a little bit in awe of the way it worked, as opposed to other things I had played, like um, that the rules were seemingly like you could just do things, and so of course in my uh, seventh grade or eighth grade, like adult brain, I'm like, what are the limits of this? Uh, <laughs> like where where's where, if, if to use the uh, the holodeck uh, idiom, like where's the walls? Where, where I know it looks like I could do anything, but where are the walls? And I, I do remember um, uh, d- 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 trying to and succeeding to kill my entire party uh, with bombs or something. And uh, my friend who brought me into the game was like, yeah, no, I, I get you were doing the thing, but they, they don't want you to come back. Because <laughs> like, oh, okay. the cool. equivalent is, okay, you're playing um, – a zombie shooter game and someone spending the entire time just being like i bet you i can clip through this wall if i jump and crouch at it hard enough yeah i am definitely not the hero of that story i want to be very clear um you know just a dumb 13 year old who was uh intrigued and was more interested in finding out like how uh how open the open world was i guess but that actually comes back to star trek because like once that niche so they had their own little niche and they had their own little group and once that niche gets locked down enough they're like we really don't need people in here who we feel like are making fun of our thing or don't understand it and we don't feel like ramping them up like that's one of the reasons why i never got into warhammer even though like i thought the lore was so cool when i was 10 Mm -hmm. um I I mean I still think it's cool. Um but I never got into that because like I would go into I I walked into a games uh games workshop a few times and I think the guys thought there I was making fun of them by asking all these crazy questions. <laughs> and like once your niche gets locked down enough sometimes it's easy to become a gatekeeper. Um and I don't blame those guys. I was 10 years old and very stupid. I imagine I was making fun of them. Um but that was <laughs> that was part of the reason why I was kind of locked out of Star Trek is because yeah. at a certain point I felt like I was like this is way too dense for me to just jump in. The sub communities on Reddit and other websites that are IMDb forums, like the different websites I was on, they seem really intense and I don't necessarily feel welcome as an outsider. And they're making fun of people for being noobs. And like, <laughs> um, so that's why like this experience is like kind of fun for me, because it's not that I never wanted to get into Star Trek. It's that I was never given proper shepherding into star trek yeah and i'm glad you know i i do i think we have a lot of things to do we still have movies to get through and i think peter and i are already talking about like some arcs or some bonus episodes and kind of continuing as this on even after we're we're out of movies because it is a it is a lot of fun and it is one of those you know few things that for myself like 
Um, it's I usually do a refresh on on things, but in general, you know, it's something that I have this weird encyclopedic knowledge at a time in my life where I could, you know, read the same book 30 times and learn everything from it that is essentially useless. So committing it to some form of podcast is a lot of fun. But um, I think without further ado, let's start talking about these episodes. So really quickly, the you know. I thought it would be fun to go back to an original series episode. We're not done with that series. Obviously, we'll be going back to it just in general when we do the reboots, which are also like parallel universe episodes or, you know, alternate universe episodes. So there's a lot to cover there when it comes to uh, Kirk and Spock and the whole gang. Um, but this was an ad- so the first one I recommended was Metamorphosis to go back. But also this like you don't need to this isn't like a journey to battle situation where knowing the relationship with Spock and Sarek means more when you start getting into Star Trek three, four and stuff like that, that they're that oh, yeah, this is this- unnecessary. <laughs> Yeah, this is unnecessary completely in relation to Zephyrin Cochran. The 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 reason I decided to pick it anyways as an intro episode, and it's not even like the best episode. It's it's fine uh, at best. Um, but I thought the reason that'd be fun to pick it is a knowing that Peter would watch in order as recommended. I think watching this episode and wondering how it relates to First Contact is was probably a little bit uh, perplexing at first and then made some sense about, you know, 40 minutes into 40, 45 minutes into first contact. It was fun but, playing the guessing game, being like, what thread in this episode are they going to pick up in the movie? I was incorrect. He, uh, uh, what did character you, name? What, what, <laughs> what did you? I, I thought they were going to uh, bring back the companion. Oh, okay. Um, but one thing I thought that that would be – the reason I thought it would be a little fun to talk about before we get into the meat of more Borg shit is, uh, you know, one thing that I really liked about Star Trek, and we've talked on our other show a lot about how I've actually just recently finally gotten into comic books. But one thing I really liked about the concept of comics or like uh, certain TV shows or stuff that I followed that had like big canon arcs and, and a complicated continuity. It's one of the things I liked about Star Trek where it was never like, um, you know, episode of the week type. Everything's a cliffhanger and it's one big story unfolding over multiple episodes. It did. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, it did have a very like, for the most part, complicated and consistent, like, story and that wasn't on accident uh after the first three seasons of television anymore like the people that wrote on subsequent star trek series were fans of the original show by the time next generation comes around they essentially have a star trek bible that they're adding to and and keeping a very complicated history of you know names and stuff like that which allows you know uh people to publish the people that write like the star trek bible to or are you know have access to it are writing like the star trek chronology which is a you know like a 500 page book that kind of goes through in a timeline standpoint of like, here's all the times these things happened. And, you know, that was something, you know, especially as you're talking over like 30, 40 and 50 years, that was something that like, I think today, especially as it relates to movies and TV, feels a little less special, right? Like what are the Marvel movies trying to do, but create, but to create this in- incredibly elaborate uh, continuity that's now starting to span into TV shows and stuff like that. The Star Wars movies and TV shows are trying to make this big, giant, consistent universe with you know throwing out the e uh, the expanded universe and 
and, and but still starting to like we're going to have 20 TV shows and 15 movies and they're all going to be, you know, tell one consistent story. Um, you know, with here, it, it, it felt new and it felt like that was one of the reasons why I think if you had that inclination as a kid that you could obsess over Star Trek um, because there was so much for, for a, a series that for the most part was episode uh, episodic by nature. Um, it, it kept a pretty like, uh, consistent uh, uh, history of the future, so to speak, and so you could you could watch this Star Trek the original series episode like I did, where you meet the inventor of warp drive, who's been you know that's just a fun thing to say. Oh, here's this person from from you're not you're not meeting a historical figure that you know, like an Abraham Lincoln or a George Washington or a Napoleon or something like that. You're meeting a historical figure that the Star Trek people know because he's still from the future from the people watching this in the 60s perspective and kind of take that in the same way they did with like Wrath of Khan, where we're going to take a character uh, and we're going to build off it like the the history is rich. We don't need to repeat ourselves, but we can pull these threads that exist and add to it. So I had seen this episode well before the movie came out um, because it, it was about it was about a couple years before I was obsessively renting every um, every um, Star Trek, the original series tape that my local premiere video had. Um, but then, you know, so I go to see this movie in theaters or I read about it beforehand and like, oh, Zephyrin Cochran, the guy who invented the warp drive, he, they're going to go back and meet him. And he's the person, uh, you know, like he's still the same person who invented the warp drive. He's still from the same era. Like I was always so impressed with the way that all fit in. And and again, it just kind of gives you those kind of fandom goosebumps like, oh, shit, Zephyrin, I know who that is like. Um, and so that's why I thought, like I said, I don't think there's too much to dwell on here on how rich of an episode it is. But I do I do think that was something that Star Trek fans kind of ate up, including myself. Also, a very pretty episode, like the color palette, the, the way it looks very visually pleasing. This episode. Yeah, it's kind of cool to see this stuff. Um, you know, not not a huge Amazon Prime guy, but like it's kind of cool to just see these episodes all cleaned up, available for anybody to stumble upon on Amazon Prime, and the the crispness of those nineteen sixties telecolor or Technicolor sets um, is 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 really like rich, and it makes you feel like you're on an alien world because like <laughs> nothing on planet Earth looks that purple or that yellow um and then when the creature shows up uh the companion it has an extremely charming antiquated quality to it like it doesn't feel like you're watching um uh the 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 um, scorpion king uh and like the mummy returns or whatever it it feels like you're seeing um an actual trick of trick of uh, motion like somebody actually came up with a psychedelic filter and then did a, 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 a um, sort of layering trick a compositing trick uh, to make it show up in the same same scene as all these other characters and sure it's stiff but Star Trek is always stiff um, and in yeah. this episode that's about like people existing in, in a fairly small set um, it's supposed to feel so, somewhat confining. Um, the fact that it feels stiff, it, it actually adds to that sense that um, 
you're stuck here with this weird blob of light. <laughs> uh oh, I mean there's a reason why the Futurama episode that uh is both kind of a parody and a tribute to Star Trek villain is a is a gas cloud because there was nothing that the original series loved more than a, a gas cloud as a alien or a villain, mainly because the special effects were so uncomplicated compared to uh, putting makeup on someone or designing a new monster or something like that. Also, very easy stunt work, because all you have to do is pretend like you're getting choked by a cloud instead of having to actually choreograph <laughs> things. And like exactly. they, they went through the same issues that C- uh, actors going up against CGI in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s went through where you're like wow Hugh Jackman did not know how to get punched by you know I don't know a CGI frog in 2000 he eventually learned though don't worry and he's still getting punched by CGI frogs today uh yeah it and that's the story it, for another day <laughs> that's a story for another day um no it is uh so Peter like I think we watch probably like nine or ten the original series episodes out of about 79 78 yeah. somewhere in there um the other 68 we haven't watched all feature space clouds so. <laughs> i specifically steered run. you into the the genre of non-space cloud trek episodes but at some point we we're busting at the seams you had to get space cloud <laughs> episode uh this is this is a real side tangent but did star trek ever do a cosmic horror or lovecraft riff it feels very um, yeah there's style. definitely like the space amoeba there's there's some stuff in there i think especially as we get um you know there's some deep space nine and trek episodes and uh voyager that are like very explicitly horror episodes i'd have to like think a little harder on the kind of lovecraft stuff That'd but be I mean, a fun a lot side of... episode for after we finish the movies. Is like oh yeah, we star, could the scary whole... Star Trek. Scary Star Trek would be very good. There are a lot of good ones. I mean, uh, one thing I really like about I think it's Q Who, which is you know a precursor Q-hoo. to the to, to this one where he's like, hey, like space isn't safe. There are you know crazy you know there there are the wildest monsters that you've ever seen, and you know you really shouldn't be out here as humans and i I like that is kind of a nod to I think a little the lovecrafting horror of of what the fuck's out here in space? you guys are hanging out your little area, but there are there are some some messed up dudes like these Borg characters uh so yeah metamorphosis is relatively simple um it it is it's uh our three our three best friends uh with a doctor who got like the flu and they didn't inoculize her properly uh, get pulled into a planet they meet a human who has like a nice little house and life there and you find out that this human has been stuck there and, and uh, basically given back his uh, young visage. He was 87 years old, took a shuttlecraft to go die. And uh, he uh, is Zephyr Cochran, the person who invented warp drive. So historical figure to everyone. Uh, this woman, but he's being like this cloud alien is keeping him there and is in love with him. But he said he's been trying to die and said, hey. Uh, please let me die. I'm very, I'm very lonely. He's Humans like, please let be- me die. I can't listen to any fog hat here. <laughs> <laughs> slow ride. Well, I let will say that although there's very little uh, 
kind of lineage from that character to James Cromwell in First Contact. I will say the idea of him just like taking a shuttle up to space to die is very much the character in First Contact, I feel. Yeah. I actually yeah. I actually think his general like cuz he he is like a Kirk and Kirk and Spock and uh, McCoy get kind of frustrated with how un forthcoming he is and how he kind of seems like the whole thing is silly even like that part like obviously Zephyr and Co- I mean James Cromwell's not doing a, whatever this guy's name's impression is but I do think like you can imagine that character well, being this character. but also, but also 150 years of difference right so you picture day day one he lands he's still loaded uh he's he's uh you know the the battery on the spacecraft is still taking everybody on a magic carpet ride um and uh after you know uh, a few weeks uh his booze magically disappears and then the companion's like Oh, you must have drank it all. And then he's like, I'll kill I'll you, woman. <laughs> um, and then, you know, 10 years go on and he's completely dried out and he's like getting happier and he's starting to get younger. Like, that's the arc, I imagine, is that the companion actually took very good, like, spa-like care <laughs> of him to the point that, like, he stops being such a, like, suicidal... um suicidal alcoholic so a couple things that are just worth sharing about that so you are right so the canon here peter and this is just a little bit of like uh you know connecting some disparate things continuity retconning uh but the zephyr and cochran here and the zephyr and cochran we see in first contact are the same age um and the reason why one is played by a, a 30, mid 30 something handsome 60s actor and one is played by James Cromwell, according to the official explanation, is um, because of and they do talk about this in First Contact, is that uh, all the radiation poisoning from both World War Three and working on the warp drive has caused him to kind of look haggard for his age. But he's supposed to be in his mid thirties. And part of the reason he's supposed to be in his mid thirties is because Star Trek enterprise, which is the first one of the series to take place canonically takes place about 60 years after first contact. And the first enterprise, um, uh, Cromwell is, uh, as in a very old Zephyr and Cochran is, uh, wishing well on its first flight, uh, because the, the enter- first enterprise, the NX enterprise and enterprise, uh, can go up to warp five, which is five times factors of the speed of light. They're going to be able to get places even quicker. He's wishing them off. And then two years after that episode, canonically would have been when he took, he would have been 85 at that, the, that episode. And then two years later, he takes a shuttlecraft to go die out in space and gets picked up by the companion. It's kind of sweet that the show has an admiration for inventors. <laughs> Oh, very much so. Like the 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 uh the like Data's dad. We watched that episode, Brothers. Yeah, and like Tinkerers, right? Like the show yeah. has a great deal of a great deal of affinity for like Jordy and and uh Scotty and like people that are like fucking around with the engine to make this go faster. Like, oh god, my the transporter's broken. Like that, that's like that's like a genuine sense of drama for the show just as much as like uh there's a dinosaur on our ship. Well, because it's all about problem solving. So yeah. they get into some, you know, either monster of the week or some sort of situation, and then they have to problem solve their way out of it. So, yeah, the engineers, the medics, people like that, they can 
problem solve and come up with rational ways to get out of it is kind of what it's yeah. all about where the drama comes which, from. yeah which is why i think a lot of people <laughs> like star trek right it <laughs> is that kind of like we have to use our brains and sometimes our brawn but mostly our brains and why some people like myself are a little iffy on the next gen movies like first contact is like what if we punch and smash everything well they're dumb that's a solution movies. to most things what i mean they're dumb action movies they're super fun yeah. like first contact is a lot of fun but it is a dumb <laughs> movie <laughs> Yeah, oh, but, yeah. like, you look at even, like, a, not to already start getting into it, but, like, you look at, like, a First Contact, which is a movie where the two, uh, the, the protagonist and the antagonist never meet. There's basically almost no space battles. It's all about outsmarting each other in that kind of Star Trek way that makes it a lot of fun. And you still think of that movie as, like, a big action movie, but it still kind of, like, uh, keeps its, like, the spirit of Star Trek type stuff alive. But anyways, we'll get oh, to that. you mean Wrath of Khan? I did say. Did I say? Didn't oh, I? You, you said, said first said contact. First, yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh, sorry. Uh, for a second, I, I was mean, like, I was like, I was like, uh, yeah. Picard definitely gets hit on by the villain of the movie, so I don't. Think <laughs> he definitely sees her, and she's like, I could cut off a piece of Picard. I, well, I think the villain of the movie fucks the other hero of the movies. Yeah, but, da- but that's because Data is a total. Uh, he's a total, uh, you know, poonhound. You know? Do you remember how I had to tell you about Data fucking Tasha Yar? We didn't do that episode, but I was like, it comes up a lot. Well, here's another instance of it coming up, but we'll 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 get there. Um, so uh, so eventually, uh, the 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 uh, the the UN representative, the doctor. Um, she dies of the flu and the companion kind of melds with her to give Zephyrin companionship, uh, which allows everyone else to leave. And Zephyrin's like, actually, I am I'm in love with this being. Um, And then and the the companions like we are both me and this human are are, where we've created a new being. Uh, it doesn't really get into this is the Star Trek uh, trying to be progressive for a age, but still in the 60s when women in general just didn't have as much value. Everyone's kind of fine with this like uh, surgeon or like, you know, president of basically the American Medical, Associ- Me- Medical Association in the future uh, having to have her personality absorbed by a. And they say basically there'll be another one like her, so... <laughs> well, yeah, there's like, no, we'll find another woman to stop that war or whatever the fuck you were doing, lady. Because the yeah. whole first part of the episode, they do treat her just like, oh, this fucking nagging woman. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it, it's not great. And it is it's, funny It's that- very much... Star Trek was always like, <clears throat> yeah, of course. Look at Women can be captains. They can be admirals. They can be communications officers. They work on the ship with men. Oh, we don't respect them that much. But... Because they're, like, they're still women, but they're still like, women. They, but look at us giving them all these chances. Like, is that just the byproduct of different writing staffs? Like, uh, certain staffs got the utopian ideals more than others, or is that just a nature of the time? Like, I, I don't. It's a hundred percent. It's you know, it, we we talked about this a lot. We don't need to get into it now that like Star Trek tends to be progressive for the general culture at the time, but you know, progressive for the sixties is still thankfully regressive for um uh the the 2020s and again not like there weren't people uh dc fontana was a was a uh a, a woman writer on star trek the original series and she kept spoken about like boys club you know the writers are still 60s men for the most part who are shitty so yeah. it, it, it's it's it, mad it, men it's but it's you know just dudes writing the- sci-fi stories <laughs> 
It catches you more off yeah. guard than it would in fucking wagon train or gun smoke because those are westerns. They're supposed to take place in a, the 18, uh, 1800s and cow, back when cowboys ruled the West. And also sometimes Native Americans show up, but um, we're, we're not going to worry about any of them. Um this is more of a, uh, this is supposed to be, this is ostensibly supposed to be a utopian show about the future. So it catches you off guard when, when they fuck up that badly. Um, but it's also funny, like Kirk says a line that just made me like wince. Uh, he says, <laughs> uh, he says something like in the universe, gender man, woman is a constant, um, which I'm not saying that he needed to have a modern understanding of non-binariness yeah. or gender or he needed to have a modern understanding of trans culture i am saying he merely needed to open up any science textbook which was well published in the 60s that there were asexual animals on the planet like on planet earth these weren't aliens yeah. <laughs> i know it was but it is like again this is not a defense but it is very much like i'm sure like some some of them, you know, the male producers and writers at the time being like, hmm, what would I think is like out there future stuff? And it's like, what if the person at this cubicle next to me was a woman and I didn't call the cops? <laughs> <laughs> well, also, oh. it kind of makes sense from Kirk because it's like, oh, he finds out that the entity is Fino and he's like, ah, she wants to fuck him. I get it because every time I come across a woman, they want to fuck me. So makes sense. I get it. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's operating in a very unique bubble. The the companion can heal whoever they want. Uh, I guess whoever she wants by the the canon of the show. Um, the companion, the the fact that she's just like, yeah, I can. Yeah, I know that, that aging, she doesn't but... heal her is like she, No one asks her to either. Like Zephyrin doesn't. That no should be number like, one. Like, hey, yeah. if you want us to be good buddies to Zephyrin, can you take care of her? Like. The one person that's going to escape your bubble is the one that's about to fucking die. <laughs> yeah, well, I will say they do have Zephyr go out and try to ask if they can say if the entity can save her. And he just comes back and said, oh, she said no. But <laughs> I mean, hey, at least giving it credit that they didn't go like, oh, she must see it as a threat because it's another woman. <laughs> so at least they didn't uh, do that. Clearly what they're saying subtextually, but not what they're saying textually. It, yeah. It's basically like the one of my favorite Onion articles of like God answers prayers of of dying boy. No, says God. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, also, like here, there's there's two things that I have, and then I'm I'm basically done with this episode. Well, one, I was uh, was really happy to see the companion. Uh, I was wondering where the hikers were um, because we were able to finally find the companion, um, but not the hikers who I assume are still still remain lost. So, yeah, every every companion, um, you know, there's technically going to be other, uh, you know, friends with them and there's going to be s several hikers with them. Um, yeah. But I'm more worried about the companions, the, the companion, than I am the hiker. Well, but we found the companion who's the same age as the hikers. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't Sorry. think people are worried enough about the companion. They're more worried about the hikers. <laughs> I want to find the companions. <laughs> um, somehow has been our most 
constantly mention Mr. Show's <laughs> It took me uh, a minute because I don't think you mentioned the companion for a minute. I said the companion. I think I said the oh, companion. Okay. Said I was happy to see the companion. Yeah. Well, you got to find the hikers. <laughs> um, and I'm then not the saying that thing- I don't care about the hikers. But you're still happy to see the companion. I'm, ha- I'm just happy to see the companions. Um, so the idea of basically two individual, uh, individual beings forming into a new one and a lot of the ethical considerations on that is actually, uh, an episode Star Trek tackles again in Star, uh, in Star Trek Voyager. Two Or an episode topic. Yep. Two Vicks, um, where, um, an episode that has, is still talked about to this day and it most recently because people asked. AOC's opinion on the ethics and morality of the episode Tuvix and uh, because AOC is both good at uh, politics and uh, seemingly very awesome in in general uh, she had a lengthy uh, Twitter uh, thread about the overall ethics and morality of the episode Tuvix but that is an episode where two of the characters Tuvok and Neelix uh, get uh, get into a transporter accident and merge into a completely new being Tuvix who uh, uh, retains components of them, but is like a completely new entity, and they are able to figure out a way to separate. Um, but over time, it's not right away, so he starts living his life and kind of enjoys it and because, doesn't want to go back to being the two other people. Yeah, so he's saying <laughs> that you you basically have to kill me in order to bring back the other two people, and the Captain, Jan- uh, Captain Janeway uh, struggles with the ethics of whether it's okay to kill a mm-hmm. life to uh, basically resurrect two dead lives that's made out of that life uh it's a very good episode actually it's uh, one of the voyager episodes that have stayed with me and i like that it's still part of the uh cultural conversation uh because it you know it is it's kind of a trolley problem situation but um it's just interesting that like this this is this is an episode where the two people merging solves everyone's problems <laughs> oh great <laughs> a, new, a new being the ethics of it are not complicated at all like that girl's dead but now she's this he's got a fuck buddy we get to leave this is great um and i but i do like that they kind of return to that with okay wait isn't there a lot of ethical considerations for the fact that uh uh there's now two pe essentially two beings have died to create a new one well, and also just Cochran himself, because when he kind of discovers that, you know, uh, the companion was in love with him, he's like, oh, no, I did not want that. But then as soon as she takes over the body of the hot, you know, uh, doctor person that he was already like really hitting on in a creepy way. And he's like, oh, yeah. you know what? I could get used to this. You know, you know, when's a bad time to uh, aggressively flirt with a woman is is when she has absolutely no means of leaving. <laughs> Especially when you're coming out like, I haven't seen a woman in 150 years. Ooh, <laughs> I like that no one said, well, technically you don't know her, because as she said, this is just a new <clears throat> being. This is not the companion that you've spent 150 years getting to know. And he's like, no, uh, but it's cool. But like, hot. You guys can go. But yeah, you guys but hot, can go. So it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, guys, it's totally chill. Stop blowing up my spot. <laughs> I think the only defensible thing about it is that, like, I'm pretty sure most of us would act pretty uh, outrageous if we were cut off from civilization for 150 years. Especially with all that radiation brain poisoning we got. Um, <laughs> we're really glad that he wasn't like, I want to go back to the city and tell everyone that they're being too woke. 
<laughs> uh, just remember, though, as we get into first contact, that uh, James Cromwell would look like this if it wasn't for all the radiation poison. <laughs> I, I honestly cannot. I'm adding to the canon. It's the booze. I mean, I'm sure it's those two things can combine. He they, definitely smokes, even though they probably weren't going to put smoking in a Star Trek movie. Um, oh, yeah, but he uh, definitely does. He definitely yeah, smokes and, quite and, and, like, he's making, he's clearly making, um, like, uh, like, actual hooch, like, bathtub, grody-ass, backwoods hooch, because, well, one, society's collapsed. Two, <laughs> even he, as a pure alcoholic is wincing at the power of his moonshine <laughs> oh yeah he's like what is this bathtub gin no this is warp nacelle whiskey <laughs> <laughs> it also uh, uh, you're gonna see the stars baby <laughs> they, they didn't give us like an uh, an ounce counter but uh marina certis gets drunk immediately <laughs> Uh, so. Yeah, which is which is a very funny scene. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so let's cute. let's pivot to Iborg. So the rundown on this. So this is the first time we see the Borg since family, which or not family. Sorry, since Best of Both Worlds. So uh, Best of Both Worlds kind of indicate that you know this was one ship as part of this broad collective that uh, for the most part lives in the Delta Quadrant, but uh, you know they started to send scout ships to see what's out there and. To kind of introduce themselves to the Alpha Quadrant, they uh, take Picard, uh, turn him into their mouthpiece uh, in order to kind of convince the the societies of the Federation to assimilate uh, peacefully. Um, He, you know, they they talk about this in family. They talk about the beginning of First Contact. You know, he went through... um, he went through essentially like a, a a body and a mind rape where he was taken over a new personality was put in his place. He talks about at the during the episode family that he was in the background watching while, you know, they did things to him. And, you know, family is like just an amazing episode of television. Um, uh, we talked a lot on last week's episode or last uh, the last episode we did about how hard it was for them to even get that episode made because in the time it was like, no, you got to go on to the next adventure. You can't just have this episode where someone deals with the trauma that they 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 uh encountered in the last episode that we put them through and so now you're basically so that was the beginning of season four uh and then this is uh near the very end of season five so it's the first time you see the borg in two seasons and instead of going back on they're kind of uh, oh no the collective's back we need to do similar things and i i think that was a good instinct because um uh I, best of both worlds is almost impossible to i think top from uh scale and drama and everything else they did which we'll talk about in first contact um but they they uh basically find dead borg they bring one back uh initially with the plan to ingest basically a logic puzzle that will kill the borg um yeah they're gonna make him like a trojan horse of genocide yep um because they're the borg they're not they're just basically one being and they're they are bent on, you know, galaxy domination. They're basically the only, like, comic book villains of the Star Trek universe. Everyone has shades. Everyone's individuals. There's a general respect of life. Um, you know, they are they are the exact opposite of the Federation. They have no respect for life. They have no respect for individual take, life forms. If you take this, and we'll get to it, but if you take this and the movie together, it feels like the scene and the scenes in Saving Private Ryan where they let the German prisoner go and then he comes back to uh murder the jewish soldier with a knife slowly 
So that's how it feels to me. I'm like a whole lot of crew members died because you didn't do a genocide, buddy. I don't. Well, <laughs> not really. Well, well, I guess kind of, but we we will talk about that. So there isn't there is a follow up to iBorg that we didn't get into. We probably should at some point because you've actually watched all the other threads for it. But uh, I'll I'll just describe it a little bit. So essentially, you know, uh, as they are, you know, as they are trying to program this and also like trying to learn more about the Borg, they're teaching this Borg about individuality. They're teaching them about, you know, and, and this Borg knows nothing about that. He is, you know, first saying, I'm going to assimilate you, which is the actor's really good. So it, it almost seems like, you know, something that was super, super threatening and ominous now becomes like cute and strangely not threatening at all. Um, and um, it's almost like it, if you meet like a kid, that was like raised Christian conservative and like you give him, I don't know, fucking the communist manifesto. You know? Yeah. Well, because Hugh does have very much like, he seems just like a teenage boy that was taken against his will and assimilated. So like you, you do automatically kind of empathize with him and feel bad for him. Yeah. And it does just feel <laughs> like, you know, he, 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 you know, he doesn't realize that what he means is harmful and they kind of teach him that. And he especially becomes close with Jordy about like, well, I don't want this, Hugh. So probably the most romantic look Jordy had on the entire show. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think that's right, Jordy. What a sad sack. <laughs> um, we haven't. Well, we I haven't shown Peter any of the failed uh, Jordy can't get a girlfriend episodes. Um, they're there. Does he teach um, any girlfriends how to read via uh, Rainbow? No. <laughs> For a second, I thought that was a blind joke. Yeah, that's what I was thinking that's, at first too. <laughs> It's no. not great. I mostly seems... know him from reading Rainbow. Uh, <laughs> I thought you knew him from not being able to read because he's blind. <laughs> uh, so eventually, like, they, you know, they're like, well, we're still going to send him back. And obviously, Dr. Crusher's like, at this point, this isn't a part of a collective. It's a, like, it's a new being. It's an individual. It's the first person who's kind of got out of their board programming and has a sense of individuality. So using, you know, there was already some concern about doing a genocide before but especially a little person. bit just a little bit just from crusher but, really yeah yeah everyone else was kind of like and you know in fairness like i i definitely had more empathy immediately to not doing the genocide but i guarantee when i was a kid when i saw this episode i was like no go kill all the borg through the you know like i'm sure i wasn't like uh what uh wasn't thinking about the moral conundrum of uh, genociding a uh nothing but a murderous species um anyways so picard finally goes in and meets with them and hugh recognizes him as lacutus that's actually something that keeps going around anytime they meet borg is that like they these borg do have these memories because they even if they weren't there they shared every moment that's part of being collective of picard as lacutus and there's a really good scene where picard like basically plays into that and says we're gonna kill all these people great it's just a fantastic scene and and hugh um you know is even even under the threat of death by this person that he saw as like a a mouthpiece for the board collective um fights against it and tells him that he doesn't want people to come to harm it's the actor plays hugh is so good at it because it's not like he's like this is wrong but he like is like you know very meekly showing yeah. his bravery well he's just like you're um, you're not gonna you can't hurt jordy jordy's my friend yeah no and then he says i won't allow it and picard's like i i 
And so they decide it's no, like Picard, you know, even though obviously he has a lot of uh, understandable, uh, you know, trauma associated with the Borg still is is always like the thing about Picard, why he's such a great character is that he, he's his honor boundness to like what it means to be a humanist and a good person and a member of the Federation always shines through over his, you know, personal vendettas and stuff like that. And so you have the scene where even though he seems a little torn by it, he, let, he, he lets Hugh go back to the collective with the idea that maybe this could change things about the collective. Now, Peter, before I get your reaction to this episode. I want to say that this episode does have a two-part sequel, the end of season six, the beginning of season seven in Star Trek The Next Generation, um, that kind of separates it from the collective as a whole. So essentially what ends up happening is that uh, Hugh does go back and all the other Borg um, kind of get that idea of being an individualistic on the one ship that he was on and the collective then cuts them off before that virus of individualism can spread. And so, so uh, the thing is, it's not that great of an episode, but the concept is really good. Um, And so they virus essentially, right? Like a a thought virus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But the Borg does stymie it. Like it's not able to escape the, the the one ship that they were on. Um, And so they, are now this, um, you know, these people with a sense of individualism cut off from the collective, but, you know, are definitely, you know, not in a position to um, to be leaders or know what to do next after that. Does, and does so, uh, the queen in the movie, um, Alice Kriege's character, does she have anything to do with the individualism virus or is she just sort of like them breaking the rules so they can have a central villain? Yeah, uh, no, it's just so they can have a villain. It's definitely the latter. Because she doesn't yes. actually, that being, character doesn't show up in any of the series until Voyager. I was yeah, being, then, um, what's it called? I was I was being uh, charitable there because I was like, it would be yeah. a cool idea if one of those individualist Borg uh, hopped ship um, and then um, rejoined and took over a collectivist Borg and then became, a, you know, a, 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 a autocrat figure. That would have been cool. Yeah, what that actually would have been interesting. <laughs> what happens instead is that uh, that Borg ship stumbles across Lore and Lore becomes their leader. Yeah, and then oh. eventually, you know, uh, yeah, so they have to stop Lore. And, and then eventually, so yeah, so then Lore, with a, now with a with a, a contingent of Boar, Borg, uh, goes and... Lore with the Boar. Lore with the Boar. Kidnaps Data and then starts feeding him parts of the emotion chip. Remember in Generations where he has the emotion chip? He gets it from this episode. At the end of this episode, mm-hmm. they permanently deactivate Lore and he takes the emotion chip and but decides not to use it. Yeah, because, they're like, save it for another day. Yeah, because Lore is feeding him emotions, which causes him to turn on the the crew uh, and everyone else. And then eventually, basically, Picard tracks down Hugh, which then has, like, this small band of revolutionaries that are almost unaligned. Like, they're not with Lorsborg, but they also are kind of pissed that Picard, like, that idea of in- introducing this, like, spark of individualism and then just leaving him to go back to the Borg, like, ruined his fucking life, basically. Um, <laughs> well, and apparently eventually he does Bo- come back in the Picard series as well, but I, I haven't seen it. I cool. heard that. Yeah, I, I have heard that. I've been trying to avoid Picard spoilers until I actually get in there. So, so, so that's I, the thing. I can, is, I can bet I can guess what happens next. 
Uh, uh, Brent Spiner gets an Emmy nomination. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that does happen, Peter. <laughs> but no, uh, uh, but so Hugh is essentially like leads his Borg against the other Borg and they kind of leave them and say, well, good luck. To, to, you're basically a new race. Like there's still the Borg out there. So they kind of like do follow up on that, but stymie it to leave the Borg collective as still like a, a potential threat that they can use later on, which they obviously uh, they do, and then they apparently. So I tuned out of Voyager. Well, actually, let's talk about where the Borg go. From my understanding, after after we're done with first contact, as a little bit of an epilogue. So Peter, one thing that's very interesting about this episode is that it does feel like it's basically the one of two paths you can take. Like Star Trek: First Contact almost operates like this episode and these moments didn't exist for. Picard. Now, it's fine that they didn't exist for the Borg because that actually has an explanation in show, but it really uh, – and I get that they're like, well, why do we have to limit our Picard arc in the fucking you know, $60 million movie we're making to this one episode of Next Gen? But I think that's a misunderstanding what uh, Star Trek fans are like. And also just like feels a little bit like he had this moment. He had the reconfrontation with the with the race that harmed him, and he didn't choose violence in this case. Well, I'm more forgiving over this because, especially in uh, this episode, I Borg, like he does really kind of show the beginnings of what he has in first contact. Like he really does want to commit a genocide, and it really it takes Guinan like really kind of breaking his balls about it in order for him to even talk to the to Hugh to give it a chance. And even then, he's still very much kind of against it. And yes, he does eventually do that. But then when we get to him in first contact, he's been living with this trauma that he probably still hasn't faced for, you know, an additional almost 10 years. So I could see it kind of building. And then yeah. knowing that nothing happened from letting Hugh go back and like the Borg didn't change because of him not choosing violence. And then, you know, having to face them again and He's apparently, you know, having flashbacks about it and then having to face them where it, everything is on the line. I could see him maybe losing it and giving into his PTSD more than he maybe did in that episode. Um, that That's how it read to me is that like he was like, OK, he, he had an individual that he liked, but he kept his prejudices, prejudices against the race overall. Well, and it's like he thought the potential of sending Hugh back and maybe that could change the Borg forever. Maybe he could make it to where they don't have to be, you know, complete enemies that have to fight to the death. And then nothing happened. The Borg are interesting because when they first show up, you're like, this is a utopian universe. Like, there is a, a peaceful path forward. They just have to find it. You're, you know, mostly peaceful path. Maybe one or two uh, Klingons have to die. But... um the it feels like when the Borg show up that it's breaking the rules of the series, but in a way that you're like, oh, <clears throat> this still feels it feeds into the overall thesis of the show that like there are cultures out in space that are entirely different than ours and think entirely different than ours. And like sometimes the show just acts as a thought experiment. It's going back to its, its sort of 1960s, almost Rod Serling inspired roots. Um, and the, the idea of just like, here's a thought experiment. Here's a race that only, they, they only push forward. They have no sense of individualism. They only push forward. They only consume. And there's a question in all those Borg episodes that they never quite solve, which is, 
is this the outlier? Like, is this one of those those ideologies that you have to reject? Right. Like um, you, you we accept lots of ideologies that are different than ours because, you know, uh, America can uh, America. Like, for instance, I'm not religious, but like America can live with with uh, religious people and non-religious people side by side. But like fascism is something that never needs to be humored. Right. And fascism needs to be. Yeah. Or like and, in, in, intolerance. Right. It's the yes. old, it's that it's the meme. Like, do what uh that you do not need to be tolerant to intolerance because by nature like the antithesis to tolerance breeds less tolerance so even though it may seem paradoxical like if you support tolerance it's it's important to not be tolerant of intolerance yes exactly like is this is 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 this race that only exists to consume other races the tolerance that breaks the back of tolerance is this the fascism that like if we exist and we allow the Borg to like operate, uh, you know, within their confines, we will all collapse. Um, and so like the Borg both breaks the rules in an interesting way, but also um, t- in a macro sense, um, redefines or not redefines in a macro sense, it, 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 it reconstitutes what the strength of the show, which is we're going to throw sci-fi concepts at you. We're going to make them feel nuts and bolts in the moment of, of the situation. And you're going to have to sort out how you feel morally about it and do Borg break that rule so much that they need to be eliminated entirely. Also, are Borgs just one asshole? Are Borgs a race or are they just one asshole? In which case, yeah. Picard has killed lots of one asshole. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I, I think we talked about this a little on our last episode where, where the other reason why the Borg are such good foils for the Federation is that they are the, they are the antithesis of Federation beliefs, which are, we go out, we discover new species, we leave them alone, we let them develop on their own, even if we they join the Federation because they can handle the truth burger we're going to give them about space and other races and warp speed and stuff because they're they're there we never meddle with like internal affairs it's why like when we did the klingon arc peter like the federation were allies of the klingon but they couldn't get involved in a klingon civil war because they respect that culture's ability to kind of govern themselves through that and the borg are the opposite of all that we don't care about other races we're going to add your unique like biological components to our own and uh we definitely don't care about non-interference because we don't care that you have a culture we're gonna take that and we're gonna move on to the next one so they really do work as like a uh you know why you know we've we've, uh, this has been done to death but like i think when we talk about like heroes it's it's really about like how how we identify the best heroes, the best superheroes, the best protagonists, the best whatever else, a lot of times is reflective of what villains they're able to come up that truly are the the opposite. So, you know, Batman has a lot of great villains, but I think the reason why, like, Batman has kind of stood the test of time is that is is that, you know, the Joker as part of that really uh, you know, represents the, you know, the antithesis of what batman's philosophy is or you have like you know a darth vader luke skywalker light dark force thing where this is what this for you know you need to do this and then it's the opposite and i think star trek you know had villains and individual people or more just like hey this this klingon race is a little less peaceful than you guys they're warlike and you know or romulans who 
you guys tell the truth and these guys lie. And I really think in, you know, discovering the Borg, they really kind of figured out there, oh, this is our Joker. And that really yeah. helps us mm-hmm. define. Um, but the Borg but, aren't evil, though. Like, no, they're, they're not malicious, really. Like, they are just trying to grow their culture and trying to strive for perfection or whatever. But they're not like evil. They're not just like killing people. For well, I got some news for you, Marcus. Is the Joker evil or is he just reflecting society? <laughs> Ugh, evil. <laughs> I am simple <laughs> evil. Now we need to make a meme that's just the Joker thing where he says I, I I'm going to become the Joker and it's just I'm going to become the Borg. <laughs> he has like a robot eye. Uh yeah, I I do I do think that um yeah, the Borg aren't evil, but they are evil in the world and I think I do think that works um very well. For Star Trek, the pro- the problem they had where like the Joker and the dark side of the force and other examples don't is that they ran into a problem immediately, which is why they had Locutus, right? How interesting is a villain that is a collective, uh, unemotional, like it's, it's just oh, it's a very force. self-limiting. <laughs> it's a force, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a force with with components, but like. How exciting is basically like a, a tsunami as a villain? You well, can make a very good action movie out of it, but at some point, like, well, they were very sporadically defend- used, which I think was why they still hold up and why people still like them is because they were there were maybe what five or six episodes of the next gen yeah. that they're actually in. Yeah, and we said earlier that we want more scary episodes, but one of the worst fates. Um, I think in Star Trek is to be Borgified, is to be assimilated, because like you're still a passenger and you you still have the chatter of voices in there. It's just you're gradually losing your identity piece by piece, hour by hour. And the moment that you as a unit are no longer necessary or, it, you know, they can save the whole by abandoning you, they, they, they cut you off. Right. Like you're you're dead. Um, he was essentially like, you know, he was on some sort of exploratory ship and the ship crashed and they, they, you know, they did come back for him, but like, that was probably a cost benefit analysis within the head of, of the Borg hive mind. Well, but does he die or does he actually like that part of him would still live forever? Assuming, you know, they have to get those boxes. That's what yeah, they, they stuff. Yeah. They still get die. the information that they collected and still put it back into the collective. So theoretically, like it's only what what ha- what's happening with Hugh's situation is that as he disconnects from the hive mind, whatever uh, you know individualism that existed before that starts coming more and more to the forefront. And that's you're right, though, Peter. That's essentially like the Locutus thing. Like in some ways, Borg are almost like in a forever Clockwork Orange situation, and eventually their mind does just break, and they become you know the the, the they just become a full force of the collective that seeps in. Um, and then, uh, you know, Picard, theoretically, because he wasn't aboard for that long, was able to keep enough of himself to push back out. But I forgot. How did Picard break free? Well, so they just they just disconnected him and then eventually were able. To yeah, they took all, all the, the yeah, took all the stuff out of him. <laughs> But okay, he talks about simple. he talks about in family being a passenger as like it was slowly taking over his, his which is mind. similar to metamorphosis. It feels like they're 
both Borg and the Companion are essentially demons. Um, they're like, in a, I, I know that's because we talk about horror movies so much on We Love to Watch, but like, I think of it as like a possessor narrative um, that like an outside force has come in and occupied your body and has decided like, okay, we're we're taking what we can get. But that doesn't mean you're necessarily gone. It just means you're in like the sunken place or <laughs> you're exactly. down below. And that's that's terrifying. Well, like, that, even is, that is a horror concept. The, the, well, like, which is why, I mean, in First Contact, Picard is very much a just kill him. Like hmm. you, the fate that they're going to go through as their like consciousness gets slowly <laughs> snuffed snuffed out in favor of the collective is uh, is is torture. That is one of the issues with the that is one of the issues with the movie is that the the movie is essentially not Star Trek. The movie is essentially like okay, but we should fucking genocide these guys, right? <laughs> well, they they kind of do, but we'll we'll get to that. Is there anything else on I I really Iborg? Was a better it's a episode. Very heartfelt episode. We're talking about it purely on a conceptual level, but like I was very touched by this episode. I'm mean, I, 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 I'm uh, I'm really enjoying this show on the cadence we're on it because it never feels like work. It feels like I'm just getting a little injection of humanity sometimes when we get to do these episodes. Like I'd mm. like to do the show in a more regular cadence and, and knock out the rest of the movies, but um, I, it's kind of nice to be able to like, oh, here's my homework for the week, and oh, this 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 made me feel feel something deep down inside like something positive and, and thoughtful because like even the comedy shows i'm watching even the sitcoms i'm watching like i started watching superstore recently like that show is so cynical <laughs> it's <laughs> it's so dark I mean, rightfully like, so yeah yeah but like um the the it's uh it's one of those things where uh when when the the time comes and Aaron and I are like oh we should do more Star Trek I'm excited for my my assignment it's and it's for episodes like I Borg where I get um I get to sort of revel for a minute I'm like yeah we should fucking wipe out the Borg and then Picard comes up with this like fucking dastardly plan to wipe them out. And then as the episode goes on, you're like, eh, they're not going to just do that in the first five minutes. Like, that's not how the show works. Um, right. Well, they're they're gone. Holodeck for everyone, I guess. <laughs> it's just it's just everyone getting loaded on 10 forward for the rest of the thing. Um, the but the, the 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 humanity there and the performance within Hugh is really lovely. And I'm really glad I got to see see this episode before the kind of dehumanization. Um, I mean, I guess that's that's kind of the point, but the dehumanization of uh, the Borg in first contact. So one thing that's worth. Uh, yeah. And I, I agree with you. I'm glad you like this episode. This is one of the things I really like about doing the show is that there's there's some episodes and some things that I've kept up with. But, you know, I. I, I don't revisit all the episodes constantly. So it's probably been like 15 years since I've seen this episode whenever I first bought the DVD set when it came out. Um, and I like I think I was way like my stock on this episode. I bought way too low because I always remember it being a nice episode. But I remember like I, I almost skipped it in favor of Starship Mine, the sixth season. Here's Picard. The one time they really did like Picard as John McClane and Next Generation and I'm so glad that I we changed our mind and direction and did this one instead because, you know, I, I think when I saw this when I was younger, it was like, you know, loving the Best of Both Worlds episodes and stuff like that. It was a little bit of like, oh, cool, the best villain they have and they make friends with it. <laughs> like, like, it felt like I didn't dislike the episode, but it's like, holy shit, the Borg are back. Oh, 
They get in, they Jordy gets a new friend. Uh, not quite what I wanted out of my one, uh, you know, one of uh, five Borg episodes that they have. Or is he? It's not even five. It's Q Who, Best of Both Worlds, I Borg, and Descent. So my yeah. one of four. Well, I mean, if you uh, count Best of Both Worlds as two episodes, I guess that would be five. Well, and Descent too. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, so six maybe. Yeah, but I mean, however you want to slice it, either four or six episodes. It's like. Uh, yeah. So, but, but, you know, that is, it is fun to come back to these episodes, you know, 15, 20 years later and be like, oh, holy shit, this is like amazing. And that scene with Picard and you is like some of the best, like acting moments in the, in the series of just like, you know, Picard doesn't go big and he does, he's not even Picard. He pretends to be Locutus and this like slow, meek bravery that comes out of this little Borg is like beautiful in a way. And, uh yeah it it was I I'm I love revisiting these episodes and this is you know finding an episode that you kind of underrated for uh 16 year old reasons uh it's great to come back to as a 37 year old also a really good Guinan episode like I really like her dynamic with Picard in this and her scene with Hugh like you know she she's not in that many episodes but this is definitely I think one of the better ones that she's used in. I'm going to say this right now because we probably won't get back to it. Um, Alfrey Woodard is good in First Contact. Mm-hmm. They, sh- they, they should have scrapped that character, which doesn't matter for Zephyrin's point because they get separated immediately anyways mm-hmm. and don't see each other for like basically the rest of the movie. Yeah, it's uh, weird that Whoopi wasn't in First Contact just because yeah, of her she history was, with she the She was board. mad about it. She, yeah. she found out in the, in the newspaper, in Variety, that she wasn't going to be in it. And she has a quote that she was like, I always thought they couldn't make a Borg episode without me, but I found out from Variety this morning that I was wrong. Yeah, oh, because, yeah, kind of a big plot point sad. with her, her character. Yeah, a huge part, right? Like, and also it's such a like, and you see, like, again, Alfred Woodard's really good in this, in this, in this movie. She is, yeah. But, but if all that same stuff had been Guinan, I think it makes it a little more resonant. Oh yeah, well, and I think, I mean, because I, I do think, so, like, all the same Stewart... lines. It feels like it was written. I couldn't find any confirmation that this was written for Guinan, but it feels like it's literally written for Guinan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, the only thing you'd have to take out is just her having to get up to the ship from the ground initially. But everything else, it yeah. could just be you know Guinan and and Picard just there together and like trying to stay away from the Borg together because they would do that. They're best friends even the part about like captain ahab and how much that would mean that's totally Guinan thing yeah but like that would mean more this is like her entire world was destroyed by the borg like having some person you just met like um again she's good in the scenes but it doesn't have the like emotional resonance of like i think what they're going for and also if anything like literally none of his best friends for 10 years <laughs> could get through to him well yeah exactly and it just took her that yeah he just met but also like something that i never really thought about until i watched it again today <clears throat> but the thing that bothers me about Lily and how she's used in this movie is that at the end of the day, I feel like she really got cheated because she would have been on the Phoenix with Zephram when they did that. But now she's basically been taken out of history because she was stuck up on the ship fighting the Borg and then Riker got to go instead. Like, you know, Riker and the Forge got to go. So like, she just is no one in history now when she probably would have been one of the people that went with him. Yeah, huge. I mean, just huge mistake all the way around. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know why. Um, 
for someone who was more Whoopi Goldberg was a huge movie star when she's like, yes, please, I'll be on Star Trek as much as I can. Yeah, like, like it, <clears throat> it sucks. Anyway, well, and also, I that, mean, they had her in Generation, so like, what? I don't know if it was maybe just a, a money thing. Like, Whoopi would have cost more, so they just. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how character. much more. Like, I, no, no disrespect to either actor, yeah. but like, I Whoopi's not pulling. Like, she's. She was in the the fucking associate or whatever this year, yeah. like um, Eddie. Like she's she's not pulling down ten million dollars versus uh, Woodard's like you know five hundred thousand. So yeah, odd choice. Anyway, uh, I think with that, guys, are you ready to talk about Star Trek First Contact? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we're going to get into First Contact. Uh, I'm going to do a quick rundown of how this movie came to be and a very quick thing of the plot. And then we're just... Oh, no. Sorry. Uh, so we have decided, I think, Peter, for these, it's better just to go through the plot like a normal movie podcast. So uh, I'm going to do a little background and then we're going to go through the plot and talk about the movie. So uh, First Contact Generations is, is somewhat of a lukewarm success. As we talked about, it actually filmed uh, between the sixth and seventh season of Next Generation and came out that November after the All Good Things uh, finale, uh, which will is probably my – it's one of the weird uh, series where I think the finale may be my favorite Star Trek Next Generation episode. But uh, we'll save that. We have to go through some other things first uh, before we get there. Um, but – uh, so they, you know, they had, they were, it was still a box office success. They wanted to keep doing them. And so, uh, who gets to, who gets to, to write the next one? It's, uh, two of the most successful writers on Next Generation, Ronald Moore, who went on to create Battlestar Galactica and Brandon, uh, Braga, Brandon Braga, was <laughs> the, the hardest name ever to say, um, they wanted to do Borg. They were like, we we basically haven't done a proper Borg anything since the best of both worlds. There's so much stuff in that show because of budgetary constraints, which bo- both of them were on the writing staff at the time. We couldn't do. We couldn't show the Battle of Wolf 359. Let's do a fucking Borg proper movie. Um, Rick Berman, noted Star Trek meddler who only makes bad decisions <laughs> verbally, um, was like, I want to do a time travel movie. I want to do a time. So they essentially combined the two it's concepts. such a hand wave in this movie. They're just like, uh, uh, oh, the Borg went back in time. What a fucking shame. Uh, so funny enough, uh, the initial concept by Berman was they go back in time to uh, Renaissance Italy, baby, and start taking <laughs> over stuff. And, uh, and they started doing a lot of design on that and are like, is this going to be shit? They're like, is this going to seem like camp where everyone's dressing up like fucking the Merchant of Venice and Leonardo da Vinci and stuff like well, that? Well, it's basically it would be like one of the old TOS episodes where they just like went back to another time period or it, it basically just would have felt like a holodeck episode more or less. Or like Cupid, right? Yeah. Like, I, I like Cupid, but it very much feels like let's have everyone go play dress up as Robin Hood. Yeah, which they had, like that. they had a number of those episodes on TNG and like they were fun little distractions at times, but it, you don't want. It doesn't work for its a whole like movie. here's our big block. Yeah. And the Borg would be extra silly, right? So they they scrapped they scrapped that and 
the problem they kept running up against, one of the other producers at Paramount wanted a villain. They were like, you can't just have the Borg. You need a villain. And they were also running into writer's blocks on that, which is... Well, how to write for the collective, pretty much. Yeah, because like, okay, so the collective goes back. Where's the drama? Where's the the mover and shaker? Uh, which was a problem like the, that the writers talk about with, with the Borg immediately that they ran into, which is why uh, the Locutus stuff was introduced, even though it ended up taking on a bigger meaning and, and more emotional heft later on. It was just this idea of how do we give a voice or a villain for the Borg to represent. So it was a late addition uh, that some people were against, but ultimately the producers at Paramount won. They, you know, they want a villain. You want to, and it, the Borg were not enough as a force for a villain, and so they wrote in a actual queen bee of this collective conscious, the Borg Queen, who, worth noting, becomes from this point on a big part of the Borg. I have, uh, I want to talk a little bit about where the Borg go after this that I, is just from my reading because I actually have never seen, besides a couple Seven of Nine episodes on Voyager, I haven't really seen all the episodes that Borg-wise come after this. But this is also a point where they introduce a villain for the sake of movie, it becomes part of the canon. And essentially, I think the general consensus of it takes away a lot of the mystique of the Borg when there's a specific antagonist that are leading them like a, you know, queen to surf uh, relationship. But I feel and like of course, it kind of works in this movie, like just as a character, because in the movie like this, it, it does kind of work. But yeah, when it's used later on in like Voyager and stuff, uh, it's yeah, it, it doesn't really. And I think it's, you know, it is a catch 22, right? Because you also ask like, well, how if you the Borg started to be featured much more regularly in Voyager and they even start becoming a big thing in Enterprise, which we'll get to. How much do, do the Borg stop working in general if you just have them as this uh, unknowable force that has no um, – because you can't do Locutus well, yeah. every time. In well, I think there's also just that, a limit. them talking. So I, I've had this problem with um, writing – horror fiction where there's like supposed to be like a hive mind or some sort of like grander uh cosmic entity you're like so do they all just explain the plot to the character that they have no reason to explain anything to (laughs) like do they all speak in unison does this one one particular character get to be the voice piece like there's an inherent problem with the borg that like you want things to be centralized, right? You want there to be a, a, a king for Picard to take down, but the Borg inherently don't have a, a king or a queen, and so they added this character. And like I was, we were we referenced during the 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 before the break. Like, there's kind of no tactile reason they need a queen to sexually seduce Picard, and if there is. They should they should be like, oh, this was all a trick. We picked this particular form because it would be uh, appealing to you. And that like your we we had somebody dummy up humanity because that's how you wanted to have this conversation. Like they needed to ground it in something. But instead, it just feels like a, an action, an action sci fi movie from the 90s, because that's, that's how we how we wrote these movies. You need to have a, a, a king to take down. Well, and, and on top of that, you know, the the queen is on like, you know, classic 
uh, villain tragedy stuff. The the queen is undone by her own attempt to, you know, her own weaknesses. Like, and that just that doesn't fit well with who we've known as the Borg. So I think in a vacuum at the time, the movie as a whole was was seen as really, really good. But it does ultimately from here on out kind of change what the Borg are and what the Borg Collective. And again, I have no personal experience with that because I really haven't seen much of the stuff the uh, that the where the Borg becomes basically the main antagonist in Voyager and stuff like that. But from my understanding, it, it, it definitely is it feels like it got uh, neutered a little bit as a concept. But again, I don't know how you don't do that if you're going to feature them as regularly as they did. The other thing that they really wanted to change is that uh, the limited, besides the being able to show Borg battles on the scale that was only described in Best of Both Worlds, they also never really liked the design of the Borg. There were the limitations of the budget and the special effects at the time, which is, you know, painted white stuff on them. And they always had this concept of the Borg truly, instead of being infected or becoming Borg from the outside in, where you put all the cybernetics on them and they, you know, that takes over their minds, that it truly is a process that begins from the inside out to change you. And so they, they kind of wreck conned or um, not even so much retconned, but kind of changed the way assimilation works where instead of a surgical process that occurs, it is basically an infection that uh, like a like a cybernetic infection that starts to grow implants and turn you almost immediately into a Borg, like a, like in some ways like a zombie bite, um, which I actually is a concept I like quite a bit. It's definitely scarier. It, it leads to some very terrifying scenes. In this uh, movie, um, which I I don't know if I mentioned this and may not even matter for this particular podcast, but uh, Maya watched this with me Uh, uh, and uh, which meant a lot of explaining, like a lot of explaining because she had never uh, she had tried to watch one of the original series movies with me and got bored. uh, But she stayed for this whole thing and she liked it quite a bit. But she's not uh, bored of the Borg. (laughs) <laughs> she was didn't get bored of the Borg. But I mean it's also like time travel's tough to explain to a six year old who hasn't been exposed to that. Well, especially either. in this movie, because they don't do a and great job explaining t- it either. T- like, well, don't worry, t- they just flew really fast towards Earth and then they went back in time. It's just a thing that happens. Here's what I would recommend if you want to uh create your own uh virus in your brain like they tried to do an iBorg, is try to explain to a six year old the concept of going back in time to the future from where you are. Um, and that's difficult. Yeah, did you like? Well, they went back in time, which is our future. Um, anyway, uh, so so yeah, that is kind of how they made this this movie. They had a couple of directors in mind that kept dropping out, and ultimately, uh, Jonathan Franks, who had directed um a, a lot of the episodes of the the TV show by this point, uh, stepped in as someone who, at the very least, they thought would take um take care of the cast and the material on kind of a tight a tight tom timeline he started to become known as two takes franks because he his only um experience in uh directing was television where you basically get two takes and you got to move on and so paramount liked him quite a bit because he was able to go through stuff and keep things well under budget and obviously the cast and the crew and everyone respected it and honestly jonathan franks like if that's your boss he seems like a super good guy to work to work for um but you definitely see the limitations of his kind of directing bona fides um which is not something i noticed 
you know, as as a kid comparing this to say the Star Trek TV show, this felt like leaps and bounds above that. Comparing it to other well-directed science fiction movies, it does seem a bit more staid and uh, boxy than you would, I think, in general want. But we can talk about that. They liked it so much that they ha- they hired him to do Star Trek Insurrection. And then did uh, not hire him back for Nemesis. <laughs> Insurrection is not, is, uh, I don't know, who, which, I don't know which one is, is, is worse. I will say Star Trek Insurrection was definitely the biggest disappointment I had ever had as a Star Trek Yeah, I fan. think Insurrection Go- is the, the worst one. Is going to it, uh, and then they pivoted gears for Nemesis too hard to someone that fucking said that he didn't like Star Trek and never bothered to watch any of it, and made uh, a fucking just, just I guess uh, a terrible Wrath of Khan. Yeah. So if um, anything, I mean, I First Contact is kind of the best of the next gen movies. Like I don't know, I came back around on Generation some. Like I actually do enjoy that one now, but I still probably think this is my favorite of the next gen movies. <laughs> So we talked about it on our Generations episode. I love Generations. And even rewatching it for the first time when we did our episode, like, was just amazed at how I just got, you know, chills and tingles and, like, all the all the right things you're supposed to get seeing both a Star Trek movie or even just, like, you know, the TV show characters you like on the big screen. I felt that way in 94 when I saw it in theaters, like, three times. I felt that way watching it. In 2020 for the episode that we recorded and i was kind of really excited i i hadn't seen this in 15 years either like whenever i bought the dvds when they came out and again college probably i rewatched it and i was kind of hoping to have that same experience um and instead i feel like um i think this this movie went down a little in my estimation and generations continues to rise it's not a perfect movie but i do think generations is the only good Star Trek, the next generation movie that actually, for the most part, honors. uh, Well, also, I think just it it does honor the characters on the TV show that we saw. Like, it does a really good job of living up to who they are. They're recognizable. It has some great moments with the ship getting destroyed. Data having emotions for the first time. They love up the Enterprise. They actually yeah. like blowing up the Enterprise more than they like having the Enterprise. They, they love blowing up the Enterprise. It's, it's like rednecks who love shooting their car with a shotgun. It's like, honestly, the car probably had a few more years in it, but you just really needed to shoot something with a shotgun. And, you know, go at it, King. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So, uh, yeah, because they threatened to do it here. And I think they threatened to do it in the next one, too. Um, it, it, it actually becomes... Uh, annoying how the, much they've run the out of ideas. stakes are so much lower. And he's like, what is it? Does he say at some point? He says like, he's like, there, there's plenty more oh, letters in the alphabet. I'm like, that, I, I love me actually. I know, but I, I do love that line where, where he's like, you think they'll have another show? But he goes, plenty of letters left in the alphabet. That's a good line. It also um, brings the scale into effect that like, yeah. I, I like the moment because at that point, they're basically, it's basically Picard saying, um, I value my pride um, over um, the lives of my crew member, my crew members. And then someone and then a couple uh, people have to come in and essentially inspire him to be who be Picard again. Um, Um, And I like that a lot, actually, because then all of a sudden he's like, it's just a ship. And also we're saving all of humanity. Right. Like that cost is nothing, especially 
Like there's no there's no moment where Picard uh, gets his new uh, version of the Enterprise and he's like, so I'm going to encourage everyone to use the vending machines because we're going to need to be paying off our debt to the corporation for. <laughs> well, also, I mean, the, the so, whole thing with the, the ship, blow, the Enterprise E blowing up is so kind of brief and they get back from it so quickly. You barely even get to wrap your head around just the idea that, you know, everyone deployed onto the planet and they were just going to be stuck in the past and like try to have to stay out of, you know, <laughs> out of the world growing out of i kind of i do kind of like that they don't do too much of the butterfly effect stuff they're mm-hmm. just like yeah we, that would just need if everyone's worried all the time it makes a less fun movie now a couple other things worth noting and then we need to make sure that he gets to meet the the emissaries right like that's that's yeah. the point that matters and then they back out at that point and from there like it's such a huge historical event like maybe you know uh cochran uh, is like yeah then me and a couple other scientists got in a ship like maybe history gets a little buffed out at that point right mm. yeah even if he says uh, it would kind of have to it, yeah even if he says some crazy shit historians would be like huh, yeah that cochran guy was pretty crazy anyways because <laughs> of him we can now go to mars and jupiter and beyond Exactly, and so a couple a couple things worth noting too before we go uh, get to the go through the plot. So the big one of the biggest criticisms of Generations from critics and just people that went to go see it with their families, I guess, was that Generations is very much picking up a ton of threads from uh, from Star Trek. It, it is a Star Trek movie for people that have seen Star Trek. The villains are explicitly you know uh lursa and Betar, people that they've run into before that's recognized um the relationship with gynan is really important to the movie um uh you know data has this emotion ship that he gets from the seventh you know the, the the premiere the seventh season premiere of the show uh you know there's just a lot of threads that are kind of pickups from the show or the whole thing with his nephew dying uh related to you know the relationship that he had with his uh his brother and his nephew in um in family and so this was a this was a movie where they were trying to be like let's just get into it and do the action stuff and yes it's still going to be star trek and it's still going to have pickups from that because it's a cast and a villain from that but let's not spend too much time dwelling on plot threads that were started in the show and the way then that they nod to star trek's past becomes a little bit more easter eggy in surface level where there still is stuff for quote unquote the fans but it's all stuff that doesn't have a material impact besides just oh cool i know that from the show so it moves away from picking up plot threads from from the tv series and turns into referencing the tv series and where we have that uh with the exception of the one big plot thread around the borg and lacutus uh where we we see that a ton so uh, you have the emergency medical hologram at this point. Voyager had premiered um, the emergency medical uh, hologram becomes the doctor and a permanent member of the crew in Voyager because their doctor dies when they're flung into the Delta Quadrant. You have cameos from the the people that uh, the person who plays Neelix um, on on uh, Star Trek Voyager. 
uh, you have um, a reference to so when Picard used to go to the the holodeck, he went to these Dixon Hill uh, Nor type novels that he loved, like uh, you know referencing like kind of like the Big Sleep Raven Chandler stuff. Um, that's the program that he uses in the, in the in the holodeck. Um, yeah, I caught that. It was it was not the Big Sleep. It was something uh, I should have no, written. The, it was down. the Big Goodbye, which is yeah. There we go. Yeah. yeah. So uh, and I know that because the, the the first holodeck episode, like the proper like we're going to go into the holodeck and Picard's going to dress up like Dixon Hill is called the big goodbye. And that's that's a regular motif that Picard uh, returns to uh, returns to throughout throughout the series. Uh, but also, again, had Guinan playing with him in that episode, basically yeah, being, know. you know, what the Lily role would have been. Yep. Uh, Barkley, who uh, Peter, since we never watched a Barkley episode, you should though. Like this, oh yeah, Barkley episodes are great yeah. uh, for the most part. So uh, the guy who gets really excited to meet uh, Zephyrin Cochran, yeah, and is like, I just, I was a huge fan of yours, and it's kind of a nervous, awkward guy. He is a, uh, he is a, uh, he's on about six or seven episodes of Next Generation. He's like this. Uh, he's the guy I mentioned who is uh he is he's um has anxiety and, and anti so like he has a lot of like uh mood and personality disorders which was always f- i don't want to say fun but like something that next generation really didn't go into that much because the whole thing is that they're almost in this utopia right so barkley was the person who like would go and and recreate uh versions of the the hot women of star trek next generation on the holodeck which is the thing of like wouldn't you just go in there and fuck people that look and <laughs> you would if you did that you would if you're barkley yeah. <laughs> yeah barkley did that and they walk in on it and it's very awkward and like he's scared of using transporters and he has all these like fears and he kind of grows throughout the series on like barkley episodes so like there's a cameo from him and so uh they have they again they they um they they kind of stem the continuations that were confusing for non fans or because they really didn't explain a lot of it um, and instead uh, went for references instead. And then the last two things I'll mention that are just worth noting uh, is that uh, 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 Jordy LaForge uh, does not have the visor. He had been trying to get rid of that visor, which everything I understand was a fucking nightmare to act in. He It actually got like somewhat drilled into his head. That's how they kept it on there like that. Like they didn't they didn't um, like go to blood, but it was it caused massive headaches. It was a pain in the butt, and no one would let him get rid of it until Frakes. Well, and he literally couldn't fucking see with it. <laughs> he couldn't see with it either. Yeah, and then of course when they take it yeah, out, it's not he an has actual visor. They didn't no. create. <laughs> they were affixing this fucking thing to to uh, Lamar Bur- Lavar Burton's head. They weren't actually creating a yeah. visor. So this is the this, the movie where Frakes, who was obviously clo- friends with Burton, was like, let's just get you bionic. Like, why can't we do that at this point in the, in the future? So that's, uh, that's, that was a that, if that was an episode I missed. No, it was. I mean, in, in Generations, he has the visor and then he just has bionic eyes or whatever, cybernetic eyes in this. Uh, and then, of course, he has that from there on out, which I'm sure was a big, big win for him. Uh, and it like you know, the visor is definitely. We we can jump to five times the speed of light or whatever. Um, oh, way more than that. That was the first Enterprise. Uh, this this Enterprise can almost uh, approach uh, being in all places at once, which is warp ten. So five times, ten times the speed of light. Uh, I'll show you the curve of how warp works. And regardless, uh, the the number of times growth. times the speed of light. I feel like once yeah. we got to about two, 
We should have been able to figure out how to not have Jordy wear a fucking visor on his face. Um, and actually, I should say for all you nerds out there, I know that Warp Five is actually um, uh, five factors of it. Like, so it's like uh, the speed of light to the fifth power, not um, not five times. Um, yeah, that's right. I saw all the graphs in the Star Trek te- technical manual on how it works. Uh, anyways, the last thing that's worth sorry, noting is that at sorry, this point, you spoke up. <laughs> no, yeah, uh, I didn't want you letters. Sent me into Peter. a deep coma. It's fair. I'll send you the technical manual that I definitely own two versions of. Uh, <laughs> you got to update new technology, Peter. You can't just keep with the technical manual when they're showing new tech. I did that show. for Star Wars. I used to buy those books that would just break yeah. ships apart and be like, oh, that's definitely the right place to keep the <laughs> neural net processor. Exactly. Uh, the last thing that is worth calling out is that at this point, Worf has left. So right after Generations, mm-hmm. Worf leaves the Enterprise. Um, we don't see that on the – you know because the last time we've seen him on uh, with the, the next-gen crew is in Generations. And he joins the Deep Space Nine cast. And is on the Deep Space Nine uh, on Deep Space Nine from seasons four through seven. Deep Space Nine ship is called the Defiant, which was built as a cloaking device. It is an extremely it is basically a prototype as the most powerful war focus ship in the fleet. Well, made to, um, to fight the Borg. Yeah, fight made to fight the Borg. Yeah, but they ultimately end up using it on Deep Space Nine because the Borg never show up. Yeah, they're not on that show. <laughs> To fight the the Dominion and the the ultimate like threat that ends up going through there, yeah. which is kind of um, weird. I mean, I, I'm glad they didn't, but the fact that they're you know at a wormhole to the Delta Quadrant and they never like took the bait uh, to, to do that. To the, sorry, uh, Marcus, it's a wormhole to the Gamma Quadrant. Oh, I thought it was to the Delta Quadrant. No, uh, Voyager's lost in the Delta Quadrant. Uh, but uh, yes. So they they do. So this was the one time that this this ship that was designed to fight the Borg fights the Borg. And that's why Worf is on this ship, Peter. And they're like, good to see you, bud. Do you want to hang out with us for a little bit? Because you can continue to be in uh, next generation movies um, and not be weirdly excised from them because you took another job. It's so contrived. It's basically they have to kill one Adam Scott to get it done. (laughs) Uh, Adam Scott lives. Uh, I assumed I yeah. assumed he was the one guy that blew up on that didn't blow up on. The oh, ship. maybe not. Uh, worth, but the, that's why they couldn't blow up the ship, right? That's why they make a note about the ship's font. Every other ship blows up, but they're like, well, they can't blow up the ship from Deep Space Nine that they need for uh, for that show. Like, what a what a fuck you to the writers. Hey, we blew up your ship in, in the movie. Good luck, everyone. Um, but uh, yeah, he uh, he gets even more contrived reasons because he's in Insurrection and uh, Nemesis too. I think Insurrection it's short. Like he decides to take his vacation on the Enterprise in the middle of a mission. Um, but uh, yeah, and then the last thing is we talked about the uniforms in Generations about how they had designed new uniforms that didn't work and ultimately just used a strange combination of the Deep Space Nine jumpsuits. Um, and the normal next generation uh, uniforms we saw from seasons three through seven, and uh, they they did design these for the um, for the movie. The Deep Space Nine characters right after this movie premiere then start wearing these uniforms for the rest of their run. Who doesn't use these uniforms is Star Trek Voyager because they are lost in the Delta Quadrant, so they are stuck in their their same uniforms. Uh, one thing I really like about Voyager, though, is when those episodes where they 
you know, get a message from the Federation or or someone gets transported, they're always wearing the the new uniforms um, after this point. But the Voyager crew obviously is not aware of the, the uniform change. Or they just um, don't have um, the blueprints for the 3D printers for the new uniforms. That's actually true. And they, they keep the replicators at low power on Voyager because, you know, they it's 80,000 light years to get home, Peter. Uh, um, and Voyager is a show people hate, right? Uh, I think it's a mixed it bag. I, I think Enterprise, Enterprise it, everyone didn't like very much. Okay, okay. Everything I heard, the, the, the line I heard. I think Voyager is just divisive among fans. The the line I heard about Enterprise, so I watched the entire first season of Enterprise and it is garbage, which is not too odd for a Star Trek show, to be honest. Uh, I, I dipped out before I heard it got really good in seasons three and four. Um, but the ratings were so bad on UPN at that point that it got canceled. But we'll talk about that in a second. So let's let's go through yeah, this yeah, plot. Yeah. I was talk- more just saying that the idea of having a Star Trek show where they have warp drive and it has a Star Trek sort of philosophy, but they don't have like the Federation. That's they the don't have thing. all this yeah. shit binding them back to the old world. That sounds like a cool concept, at least on paper. It is, and they do some cool things with it, and they all. But you also run into the limitations of a seven-season show of like, well, you kind of want to see some of the Federation shit, especially because at that same time, Deep Space Nine goes into full out. What if the Federation had a CIA that was doing evil shit, and also there's a huge war, and the Klingons decide to be bad? Like yeah. Deep Space Nine is doing some cool go shit. To, and I almost never want to go back to Earth in these shows. So yeah. like. For me, all of that sounds deeply unappealing. Well, basically, all of Deep, Deep Space Nine seasons three through seven from like it still does episode of the week, but becomes a lot more continuity driven, especially in the last couple seasons, becomes uh, the thing. Cool. <laughs> because uh, because anyone can be anyone. They do all these blood tests all the time because you can't trust that anyone is who they say they are. Because you design me a two hour movie. <laughs> That's just like six episodes of the show or not six. Oh, and also, yeah, Jeffrey Combs is the main antagonist eventually for that. For, he's a that's Ferengi, he's right? No, I mean, he's a Ferengi. He played seven different characters. Yeah, he's been in a lot of different iterations. He becomes Wayun, which is like the main uh, – he becomes like the governor – and like one of the main uh, villain antagonists God. for this alien race. The it Dominion. fucking kills God. me that we've done so much of this show and well, so little, I guess, fractionally, but so much of this we've, show uh, for me. And I haven't even seen I haven't even seen the Combster in one face prosthetic. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would, we, we just don't probably have the time for it. Well, I mean, collectively, there's like over 30 seasons of all the shows, so. <laughs> I would love to, Peter, you would fucking, Deep Space Nine would be your absolute shit, although it has the problem of the first two seasons being meh. First season especially, second season, yeah, it very much like TNG starts to kind of come together in the second season, and then third season is great. I'm derailing us entirely. We're mostly just continuing a, a long-running conversation about all the fun episodes we get to put together. Yeah, there's a, there's the a movies. lot. 
a lot on the horizon if we want to. Uh, <laughs> is, wait, hold on. Is your episode for Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, the episode you want me to watch, in quotes, just going to be watching Wrath of Khan again? <laughs> <laughs> it, should, it should be. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Or, or Star Trek Nemesis again. Um, uh, Mamma Mia. By that point. Yeah, but anyway, so let's get into it. So yeah, in as we said, uh, this movie doesn't want to explain too much shit, so it's it kind of it, it jumps right into. It's just throwaway lines mostly for explanations. Well, yeah. So I mean, there's so much. So originally, they had a lot of stuff that they cut about like the Enterprise E and where they've been, and I think they even sh- like uh, we're going to do a scene. Um, where they uh, that was supposed to take place after generations when they all kind of came back on the Enterprise E, but essentially, well, that Jordy does that say at one point that they had been out for over a year, over a year. Yeah. So the the idea is is that um, they did commission a new Enterprise, um, and they yeah they've just been doing Enterprise shit on a new Enterprise. All the same people except Worf. No one gets promotions. Um, they really that threat of Riker ready to leave to become a captain that started in the second season. They really threw out the. They're like, well, okay, we have to end that at some point because he can't go become a captain somewhere. Yeah, it's like no, yeah, he is um, gonna die <laughs> as first as officer. We discussed in a previous episode, this this needs to happen, right? Like that's the sort of thing where you're like, the show no longer works with Worf on the same deck. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, so they do a flashback of kind of Picard having a PTS flashback of him as Locutus, which immediately makes him go, oh, uh, they're scanning stuff on the neutral zone, normal Star Trek day, day job shit. Um, and uh, he's like, he gets an immediate communication from the Admiral. Who's like, hey, the Borg are coming to Earth again. He's like, I fucking knew it. Um, And you find out that he can still hear the Collective, which is a new piece of information, but also the first time that we've run across the Collective since since he was uh, Locutus. Um, So some sort of Internet like connection to the Borg still. Yes. Yeah, he still has a bit uh, of Wi-Fi actually, implanted in his head somewhere. <laughs> he yeah, I mean, it's 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 5G, which is why he's not <laughs> getting taken over, because Bill Gates engineered it that way. But it's, you know, it's still impactful in the future. It's still so, so, yeah, so he um, – so they are amassing a fleet to stop the Borg. But, but the Enterprise E has to to stay on the neutral zone because they don't trust Picard to not I don't know be weird like you we don't trust you to be chill even though um, the Enterprise E is still the flagship of the Federation and is now a sovereign class which man what I a box and, and that you've literally proven that you can be cool around the pork previously <laughs> yeah, what a, yeah what a fucking like you you turned in reports from Iborg well actually so if I remember correctly from Descent Marcus. Uh, one of the beginning parts of Descent is him getting uh, fucking yeah, like by that lambasted by the yeah. Admiral for not just, killing him all. Just like, you motherfucker, you had the chance to kill them and you didn't. Yeah. So maybe that maybe that is like a little bit of like... Uh, I guess, yeah, continuity. maybe worried that he, he may switch sides or like not actually attack them because hey, of that. But hey, remember like when you bu- could kill... Yeah, remember when you could kill them all and didn't? How about stay home today for the battle? Yeah, it just feels like a box check to me, though, where they're like, alright, so what is the one thing that Kirk and Picard like have in common at a top level and that they'll do the right thing even if authority says don't fucking do it, right? Like, 
they'll go jump into a battle even though Starship Command says don't, right? So like that, it feels like a box check, but the difference is in the previous TOS episodes, there was at least a moment at the end of the victory where Kirk would, or not TOS episodes, excuse me, the TOS movies, where Kirk would be in some guy's office <laughs> or in front of a, of a council and they'd be like, dude, in fucking follow the rules. What are we supposed to do with you? And he's like, hey, um, but I uh, kind of saved everything. Yeah. like that Well, was the, the thing, thing about, about Picard is, though, with, is that... that I think a fairly potent moment, but like it feels like a box check to have the moment where they're just referencing that Kirk might be, uh, quote unquote, compromised. Um, yeah. But it doesn't actually matter at all Picard. in the plot, yeah. really. I mean, it matters it that he has trauma, trauma from it. That's I mean, that's what they're trying to introduce. You can tell they're just trying to introduce like, hey, here's where we're at with Picard in this. If you've never seen a Star Trek movie, you should be able to to follow along that he had this experience. He was kidnapped. Someone refer Troy walks in and is like, you know, you were assaulted by the board. Do you want to talk about it at all? And because uh, the one of the biggest crimes of Next Generation is that literally no one. Uh, treats they have a counselor on the ship who i think is like third in command and uh fourth in command and no one ever uses her for counseling ever except except when uh, they're forced to really they're, they're either forced to they're guest stars yeah and then they it was so bad we talked about this on one of the episodes that they're like all right well picard's not going to talk to fucking troy especially <laughs> with the out especially with the outfit we gave her so let's introduce Kynan, who's the new counselor to everyone all the time, um, which is not a like Kynan's great, but it, she basically takes the job of Troy. And then yeah, she does that job a lot more than Troy actually we, does we on the show. About that in previous episodes, yeah. where it's yeah. like you need one like super empathetic, empathic. Excuse me, you need one super empathic like psychologist character yeah. it's basically in a cop show. but i mean that's basically it's what troy like, ends up being she you just shot basically... a guy you gotta go see the shrink like yeah but troy basically is there to the same thing yeah but troy is basically just there to be like he's lying like i can feel that he's feeling off or i can't feel that's pretty much all and everyone's like oh yeah the romulan or the ferengi or whatever might be lying yeah it's like no we, we got thanks troy <laughs> <laughs> so again kind of useless uh yeah, it's they really they they do they do done her dirty yeah. as a character for most of the show and the, uh still still a uh, still a good character based on the portrayal and a couple episodes where she gets to she gets to shine like I, I really like uh Troy but uh they definitely are like I I really wish like why you know there's that great moment where his nephew dies and Troy gets to sit down and, and he opens up to her about what this means and cries and kind of has that moment and like here um. It's like, hey, can I be uh, – I'm going to be drunk and do nothing for the rest of this movie. I'm going to be a counselor here for – nope, don't want to talk. Okay. Well, it doesn't seem uh, like they just, didn't well, know what to do with her in the one. show other than like have like romantic subplots with her and stuff. Well, the thing about this movie and all Star Trek movies is that no one knows what to do with an ensemble cast. Um, they All the movies um, – Generations is actually the best at this, but they all get progressively worse. They become – uh, they become Data and Picard. I, I think, um, what's the one with the whales? Is that four? Yeah. Um, Voyage Home, uh, which is still one of my favorites so far. Um, oh, yeah, that's the best. That one, like, everyone gets a moment. That one is, I think, the best at, uh, even though it's it's clearly, like, what they're doing, and also, like, a bunch of cast members did not want to be in the same scene with 
with um Shatner anymore. Shatner. Yeah. Um the the um they give everyone like a hero moment whereas in this like it's kind of like everybody's in a in a little sub party but it's mostly like data and picard that matter here um and by that i mean it's mostly picard that matters here because like frakes has the same job as geordi has the same job as um troy and um like there's like little moments of tiny moments of character conflict but it's largely just like comedic set pieces they're not like it's not like they're using everyone's specialty to like get the job done. It's well, also like, the majority of the story takes place on the Enterprise with the Borg stuff, and there's very little that's actually on the ground with like over half of the cast. So interesting Which, in the original in the original write of this or the original script of this, after they got out of the Italian stuff, it was supposed to be Picard with Cochrane and Riker on the ship, and someone's like, that makes no sense because Picard doesn't. Um, Picard's not around the Borg. Um, uh, yeah, but, it makes no it makes um, no sense though. It it would make sense for Picard to like step back on his own volition and and like let Riker get in there, but like that feels like, like yeah. a season long arc. That's not a movie arc. Well, that's again the big the big problem here with the Next Generation movies as a whole, which you see, this is the one that almost defines the this is our problem template. Generations does it like it it makes, you know, the two main arcs in that movie are Data's and Picard's, but it still feels like a little more of an ensemble cast, especially with all the stuff Riker has to do fighting uh, Lursen Beatar and, um, you know, Jordy getting kidnapped and his relationship with Data changing and a lot of other stuff there. Troy actually being able to be a counselor and stuff like that, that that the original series was not an ensemble. It was the story of three leads who had other characters that were around. And so, yeah, the fact that the only TOS movie, uh, I shouldn't say the only, but like the two best TOS movies for like letting the ensemble or letting the the secondary cast have moments are The Voyage Home and The Undiscovered uh, Country. And uh, whereas Next Generation was a true ensemble show, yes, Picard was the captain, but um, you know, in a in a season, there were everyone got their turn to be the lead of an episode, and the, you know, there's there's as much uh, Riker episodes as there are Data episodes almost, and there's you know, and so you you had that sense of um, everyone had their moments throughout the seasons, and but here it's just like um, okay, who were the but, most but in a movie characters? they just yeah they, I don't know if they needed fucking Robert Altman to direct one of these. <laughs> Like none of the directors ever figured out how to do ensemble, so they just went immediately to our two leads are Picard and Data, and this one gets bad with it. And then the next, but the next two are like that too, where everyone is just second fiddle, and so it just feels like I get it. Maybe no one was like, "Well, we need a you know we need a Crusher (laughs) Jordy movie," (laughs) like that doesn't feel right for who the everyone loves. I forget the Crushers Uh, in this movie at all. Yeah, she has even even less to do. She could have just not been in the movie, which which just sucks. I mean, I I guess the the because even I mean, Insurrection treats Crusher and Troy especially bad because the whole thing is they get younger and they're like, "My breasts are firm now." Um, uh, Anyway. We'll get. We'll unfortunately get there. Yeah, very soon. Well, and um, Troy gets really treated like garbage in Nemesis as well. 
Can we talk yeah. about... So, I want to jump off of you saying that no one can quite handle the ensemble in the movies well. And we are getting into this point where, like, I still like this movie. I still like Generations. Um, it, but we are at a point where I, I don't think any of the directors are up to the task even in comparison to a TV program that costs a tiny fraction of what the movies cost, right? Agree. Well, and, my and whole my whole thing from the beginning, Peter, on that point, which I think you're starting to see, and you're really going to see it on the next two movies, is that when it comes to the original series, the movies are the best representation of the originals. They really are. Like, the original series is great, but those movies are just overall fucking fantastic and they're they take big all episodes with more money right and like they, they take they, they all the best parts out of touch out of stuff. no no and they they introduce like an actual arc throughout like the movies become about kirk about how he used to be a young hotshot and how he's getting older and that is a through line for all six of those movies that they he, they keep trying to promote him but at the end of the day he just wants to be an adventurer and he wants to do these um kirk type stuff and like it's it's a satisfying arc it's satisfying the way the whole thing resolves in both the undiscovered and generations from my perspective um it 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 doesn't have to worry about an ensemble because that that it was always a show about uh, Spock McCoy uh, being like the angel and the devil depending on the moment on Kirk's shoulder and and like that always that always worked well they were all in some way supporting Kirk. Well, I guess and, Next Gen didn't really have that because it was much more of an ensemble. Like there wasn't really that, it was. that small core group that they could focus on easily in the movies. So they just kind of so went with, to the most yeah, popular so with characters. Next Gen, with Next Gen. <laughs> The best next generation by far is there is 80 episodes that are better than all the movies, right? Like any of the movies. So the the best the best next generation is 100% on the on the television screen, um, which is why we're going to do ultimately way more next generation episodes yeah. than than TOS episodes. And unfortunately, you're just finding like the part of the reason that these movies are not generally fondly remembered or even all that successful is because they just never like i said i think generations is the best crack they had at like making a star trek the next generation movie and i think first contact was the best crack that they had at making a, a big budget movie type next generation movie even if it's not true to a lot of the characters i think or does does the series that much justice and then they completely lose the fucking thread and just just fall on their face um at the same time enterprise is getting canceled and and uh basically star trek goes dark until the the abrams reboot so you're starting to see the glimpses of that i by the time we're done with the next movie, Peter, I'm going to need you to power through the next two. If you like them, I would be very surprised. <laughs> I, have, well, I will I have say, a central I will, thesis. Oh, sorry. Go on, Marcus. Oh, I was just going to say, I do feel like Insurrection is, the next movie is kind of more of a return to trying to make it more like a long episode, but they're just so off base with the characters and what was good about the show that it just doesn't work at all. Well, yeah. the problem is, is that like, I, I think I said this on the Generations episode, we'll get to it, so... You know, you talk about like escalating scale and stuff like that. You still have to have a movie, a, a story worthy of a movie. Like, yeah. So <laughs> Generations is like these two people meet and ultimately they're trying to save four billion people. Holy shit. Sure, mm -hmm. it's a planet we've never seen, 
but the whole the whole cast is going to die plus four billion oh, yeah. people. Those are stakes, baby. Well, yeah, I didn't this say Insurrection was a whole... good episode, but it did feel no, like, I, no, I know. like a bad but then, episode. But then this one, the, what are the what are the stakes? Holy shit! All of all of the Federation and humanity gets assimilated by Borg. Those are movie stakes, baby. What is Insurrection? Uh, two hundred people are going to die. Uh, and if they do die, by the way, we discover how to live forever. Um, <laughs> but no, we're, we're back. We're back to at, not not wanting genocides. I mean, it's two hundred people at genocide. I'm not saying that they should have died, especially because the person who was going to control the live forever serum is uh, not a great guy. Good actor, F. Murray Abraham, not a great guy. But um, the stakes You're not just become F. Murray Abraham. No, I would never say F. Murray Abraham, but I would say F. Murray Abraham. Would you say F. F. Murray Abraham? Never. Okay. <laughs> Unless I was repeating back what you said because you forgot and I had to just <laughs> remind you of the sentence you said. So here's my central thesis here. And you were talking about uh, the failures of the, the, the uh, Jonathan Frakes to capture the ensemble. And um, – Couch everything. Couch everything I say here with um, the knowledge that I think Jonathan Jonathan Frakes is very hot. Um, so the you haven't even seen a trombone episode. I will. I will apparently in the future. Uh, Can we do an episode in the future that's just Jonathan Frakes is hot? <laughs> well, sure. there's plenty of episodes if you want to see him. Yeah, yeah, we're doing we're doing second chances, baby. Where there's two Frakes, two Frakes, twice the boners. Um, <laughs> So, uh, you want, you want both William and Thomas Franks to fuck Troy? Great news. Different. I mean, they don't do it at the same. Yeah. Freaking news. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so my issue with this movie is in the ensemble, um, is that Frakes is not a very good action director and the, the movie is primarily action focused. Yeah. So, the his his problem with not knowing how to balance an ensemble is also there with not knowing how to balance an action scene. Well, all the action is all, very slow as well. It's, it's so, so slow. It, everything feels like it's being done underwater, and then the scenes out in outer space feel like it's being done in molasses. So, it's not that I don't want the scenes. It's not that I don't think there are cool moments in there, right? Like. Um, data breaking a guy's neck is fucking cool. Like Worf just get the, his his whatever phaser shell Bat- absolutely batleth. Yeah, just beating the shit out of people. Like it's absolutely like there's absolutely great little moments in here. But that's not direction, right? That's like I mean that is that is directing a moment. But like that's not directing yeah. like an overall film or a, an overall scene. The every action sequence feels like chaos and not in a um a, a sort of slice of life uh you know cinema verite moment yeah. where you're like this ne- needed an altman what are they saying <laughs> <laughs> it's just chaotic. it should have been gosford park and, and the problem here is that i actually think that the the sort of hand hand to hand in your face direct conflict here is totally justified with the plot. This is Picard breaking who Picard is and becoming a, a, a caveman. This is Picard losing his better angels and becoming more of like a, a, a man-to-man fight. Um, because like these movies always have 
always have dogfights. And for some reason, we've decided that dogfights are more civilized than, you know, Picard shooting a guy. We've just decided not, that's fine. Not the voyage home. What? There's no dog fights in the voyage home or the motion picture for that matter. But they, they, there's always like there's always like the ship is shooting at us and we need to figure out a way to fi- to stop the ship from shooting at us. And it usually involves we need to break their shields so we can blow up their shields. Well, I guess if you call sending lethal whale sounds from a drone at uh, a ship shooting at you, Peter. Sure. <laughs> but these movies are full of that and no one cared you, about that right like, no I, no I, and the show was full of that like the dog fights like and that's or you know not even dog fights just like we need to shoot uh you know photon torpedoes at a guy but, like, but the show's great because it's like do execute uh picard maneuver seven four delta and the ship like slightly turns <laughs> it's a big model like that's the maneuver i don't know what to tell so that actually gets to the next but, point but i think plot. that that's i think oh, if, if i can just like wrap that up really quickly like i yeah. i think that that is my biggest issue with this is not conceptually because i think the idea of picard making this fight personal and man-to-man and wanting them to pick up a bunch of like Mass Effect style space rifles and 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 going and charging into the occupied part of the deck, like that feels like Picard has lost his better angels and he is now taking it extremely personally. And uh, the end of the movie is him renouncing that and him attempting to become Picard again. And the biggest problem I have with this movie is that he's rewarded with that by basically being told, yeah, like you should have come and your guns blazing and then let Data, you know, uh, you know, uh, break the fight from from the inside flank. Like there, there's a there's a there's an issue because usually like these these end with like Picard can't force his way. His phaser doesn't 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 activate. His his photon torpedoes don't activate. And then he has to find a way to diplomacy out of his way out of a problem. He tries diplomacy, it fails. His next move is to blow up a gas that murders every Borg on board of the ship. And then snaps the spinal cord of the Borg Queen. It's just like a little cherry on top. Yeah, but that was my uh, point. Yeah. Like I think it's like it's like they're headed towards, I think, a very uh, a very um, astute point, which is that like usually Picard is able to deal with this and like, a, you know, like a, a ship captain or something like he's able to deal with this with a sense of civility and diplomacy. And then all of a sudden he's like, fuck, I hate these guys specifically. I have to take them down. And there's a bunch of gunfights and, and you know, shootouts in the movie. But the movie at the end betrays any interpretation I can make that it, that is that is somewhat um you know, charitable that the movie had a, a broader point in mind with these shootouts. Well, no, because it basically yeah. continues that for the next two movies as well. Like that's just kind of what they become. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I also just think like, I, I think Picard has been in worse situations and not totally betrayed who he was so quickly. And so, but he has a personal stake here, but I mean, there's an episode that we're going to watch Peter. And I think you're going to be like, oh, okay, well, wait a sec. Picard, Picard got through that and uh, with like his dignity intact and somehow um, and and also I just don't like to, like the thing about so he, so they go to they they find he hears that the battle's going bad they go to Earth and join the fight where they pick up Worf this I do like that you finally get to see 
Again, it's not like the best directed space fight, but it's probably the biggest at this point in Star Trek's history space fight that you've ever seen. You kind of get to see, you know, in, in Best of Both Worlds, they're like, all right, Riker, try to catch up, but we're going to have the battle without you. Um, and it just it does remind me as much as I'm not a huge fan of the show. Um, it does remind me of that South Park episode where they like Kenny's in heaven and he's playing on the PSP for the battle between Earth and or, uh, hell and heaven's forces. And it just shows him from the angle of Kenny and the guys are going, this is the most amazing battle I've ever. Oh, my gosh. Like this. I've never seen anything like this. And like that was kind of Wolf 5-9, right? Because they know the budget to show 30 ships getting destroyed by the board. So they kind of get to do that. Um, but everything happens so fast, right? It's, and it just feels so Picard gets there. There's the battle. All the ships are dying. He basically gets like a voice message from the ship that says, oh, don't, I guess the ship in his head is like, oh, don't shoot me there. That's where I get bowies. And he's like, everybody shoot right there. And they shoot there. And the board ship that was like this unstoppable force in, in the best of, well, both worlds becomes like actually something that's super easy to destroy as long as you shoot in the right spot which is also the big glowing on fire spot um and then out of that comes a borg sphere which is like a shuttlecraft which they start chasing that immediately that's goes very back. easy to blow up by the way very easy to blow up does not have any of the same no, I a mean, couple of photon the, torpedoes the, boom it's done yeah uh goes uh goes into a temporal vortex um and yeah picard's like fo- follow him and as they're in the vortex they see earth in the present that has been completely assimilated which is a great scene it looks pretty cool like if you're if you're a star trek fan like oh shit these are the stakes the stakes are big something bad's gonna happen and uh they get out they blow up the borg sphere they don't detect anything transporting even though their shields were down uh they never come back to that not that they need to uh necessarily but why don't they just say our shields are down <laughs> and uh that's how they got on instead they're like how come we didn't detect them when their shields are down anyways let's never follow up on that again um and uh but they're like where are we and they find out they're in earth in like 2063 i think it is and they were firing on a missile silo in uh, montana this is 10 years after World War III, which we also see kind of depicted Peter in uh, Encounter at Farpoint, where they have all those trials uh, post-war. Remember when they they, they uh, when Q takes them to the kangaroo court, where yeah. all murders have been murdered and stuff like that? So, and again, you really kind of... can't tell if this is, like, Q's recollection or if this is, like, a pretty literal interpretation of what, what happened. Yeah, but this is like that's the same time, right? The courts that he and this is basically all countries are somewhat destroyed. There's different factions vying for power. Uh, so what is what is, it's something like th- two billion dead or something like that? Four billion <laughs> it's actually dead. Kind of small. It's six hundred million. <laughs> oh, I mean that's not small. Peter. It's small compared to the current population of whatever nine billion. It was 600 million, uh, but I don't know what the world population was supposed to be at that point, but it's still significant because even if it's 6 billion people, right? Yeah. That's That's 10%. So yeah, they're like, oh shoot, they were a missile silo in Montana. And Picard has one of those great – Patrick Stewart is a great whisper realizer. That's like his secret skill where he's like, Montana, 2016. What's the date? What's the exact date? What's the date? What's the date? (laughs) They're trying to stop first contact. 
Yeah, Kiefer Sutherland, I think, borrowed his whisper, whisper yelling from Picard uh, when he finds out something cool. But yeah, they're trying to stop first contact, which is the point that changes everything. But also, I thought they were just trying to assimilate the Earth. Like they could uh, just. Well, I guess do it's that. easier to assimilate the Earth if Vulcans aren't hanging around. I don't know. Um, to be fair, from the Borg's perspective, their initial plan by the screenwriters to go back to the 16th century or Italy was a better plan. <laughs> yeah, like, it would have been a much better plan. Uh, instead of instead of the day before first contact. Uh, yeah, uh, but that's what they're doing. They're trying to stop first contact so that they can assimilate um, assimilate the world. Uh, first contact is actually something that's referenced quite a bit in Star Trek lore to this point. That you know they met the Vulcans, um, and that kind of changed in the middle of uh, a world World War Three, like and also just a series of wars, right? Because the eugenics wars of the nineties is still a big part of of Trek canon as well. That's the con stuff, um, and so like uh, essentially that this kind of pulls it out. They uh, they all unite around the fact that they're not alone and eventually become, you know, we kind of see that fulfilled in the pilot of Enterprise where there's a federation of planets. They're working with other species and are about to launch their basically first federation uh, Starfleet starship. Um, so, uh, yeah, they uh, beam down to the surface and to figure out if the ship's OK and to find Zephyr and Cochran. Um, they they find Lily at the missile silo, the missile silo, uh, played by Alfre Woodard, and uh, has a fun data moment, which you don't get as many as I would like in this movie, but like where he, <laughs> uh, my my daughter liked it quite a bit, where he got shot quite a bit and was like, "Greetings, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, data is bulletproof. He is bulletproof. It's fucking weird, um, but it also but he's reminds not- you that like." They moved on to phasers for a reason. Like yeah. they, they, if they could have just kept using Tommy guns, they would have. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, Riker and Troy. So basically, then they find out they get the the, the call from the ship with Worf up there saying, "Hey, some temperature shit's happening up here, and we can't get into engineering." Picard immediately also hears the voices, realizes what's going on, goes back to the ship. So you end up having a movie with like two tracks, right? And literally they can't communicate with each other. Borg are taking over the Enterprise. That's the – to some uh, – they beam up Lily too because she faints after meeting uh, – after, after she realizes the data situation. That he's a robot who can't be killed from the future. Which is also kind of silly because uh, all she did was faint. It's like, oh, we better get her to sickbay. Get oh, her up. Our, our, our uh, future medicine is going to be able to save this woman from fainting <laughs> when she met an android. Uh, exactly. And so, yeah, so Crusher, um, Picard, and Worf are on the ship that starts getting slowly taken over by the Borg. Um and they are unable to stop it. Uh, so they have a lot of action scenes, all the sort of like we have we have rotating phaser frequencies so that the Borg can't, you know, adapt. And that, you know, they're not able to keep up with that as much as they want. And then a track on the Earth where they meet Zephyr Cochran is played by James Cromwell, who's like an old drunk who invented uh, the ship to make a bunch of money. Um, although he's not an old drunk, he's a drunk in his mid 30s, heavily exposed to radiation. Um and uh, they basically have to convince him, despite all this stuff, that he needs to do the flight that he was going to do because 
Vulcans that are patrolling in the area are going to detect his warp signature and in a like a precursor to the prime directive say oh this civilization is ready to give a give a how you do to um so let's let's just let's just talk about this stuff from generalities from the two tracks because they really do not meet again until the end um they're separated from communication everything else Jordy Riker Troy on the planet um they lose contact with the ship as the Borg take it over Data, Crusher, Picard on the ship. Let's do the planet stuff quick because I think it'll be a little bit quicker and I know we're already pretty long here. So, yeah, the, the stuff here that's great is that I Cromwell's great. Yeah, Zephyrin Cochran. he really is. I love the, you know, Riker and Geordi, I think, are the right people to be in this, like, kind of B story in that Cromwell's Riker a is... Character. He's, just kind of a, he's just kind of a wild man lush, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, just, I, I, I kind of would... It's James Cromwell... You could have gotten fucking Dennis Quaid or Randy Quaid to do. You could have gotten Randy, Randy Quaid, Quaid would have been pretty good. <laughs> like, I gotta tell you, that ship is anybody. not. You could have gotten Booker from Revenge of the Nerds and then to play a lush. Like you got James Cromwell. You didn't write in a scene where he's like genuinely touched by this moment of history he gets to be part of well hold on but i think so the thing i like about so most of it is convincing him and telling him what's going on and he he gets kind of like i don't like that everyone thinks of me as this great man and this hero and i i actually kind of like that as an arc like i agree that it's super shallow in the movie but that idea of like you know people that are like looked at by history as great people like you know, as we've as we've definitely like done a lot of like interrogation, I think of our own hero worship worship of like the founding fathers and stuff like that. Like there, there's no such thing as like a true saint throughout history for the most part. And so, a lot of people that we ascribe, you know, three hundred years removed, a lot of like historical importance, and you know, the statues and the the schools that they go to named for them. I like that he kind of reacts as like. Kind of almost from a from a perspective of like guilt is like he accidentally conned a civilization into believing he's this hero. Well, it's the pressure. He doesn't feel worth it. He's like, D -d look at me, like I'm not that guy. Yeah, also, I I just think I just think he works as a comedic character. Like James Cromwell is really good as like a comedic character in this, but he doesn't work. Like there's no moment of empathy. For this guy who, like, is all of a sudden having history uh, hoisted upon his shoulders. I But I like the kind of guilt that he, when he finally is like, like, you know, I did this to make money. Like, you guys have, have put all this import on me. And I just did this to try to make money in a time when, like, you know, civilization has literally crumbled. And I, I agree it's, it's light, but my f I do love their space flight. When they finally go up. In the rocket, everything about it, I love. I love the um, the part where he is like confessing all this stuff, and you know, and I love Riker's line where he's like, you know, someone once said, "Don't try to be a great man, just be a man, and let history do the judging." He's like, "That's fucking, you know, that's that's hippy dippy nonsense." And then he pauses for a second, recognizing everything that's happened to this point. He goes, "Wait, who said that?" And Riker's like, "You did." 20 years from now. Uh, I love that moment. That's such a good, it's a good Riker moment where he's kind of being a cocky asshole. I love Riker. Like Riker, I, Riker is one of those characters who like can do almost no wrong for me. 
Well, and also Cochrane is great. When he, they do he was get my favorite flight, as a kid, too, when, but I love that moment. Yeah, well, and then and there's I a love... moment when Crummel actually, like, sees the Enterprise uh, up close more, and then when they actually get to warp. Like, those are really good moments for him, where you can tell he really great is moments. into it. Like, he, he does love it, and he didn't just do this for money. And I love, I mean, and I also think by having some gravitas in Cromwell being that person is that even though he's portraying kind of a, you know, scraping by drunkard, you could see where he would pivot to a, a person of historical importance. Well, once that's by who he's playing, like kind of forced on him, once he has to meet an alien species and then to go from there, like, yeah, you could probably clean up his act a little bit. But I also like if I mean I know this was a joke, but if it was played by Randy Quaid, I think you'd have a harder time believing that. Not the not he the drunkard part. You would have killed that part. Oh, you would have killed that part. He and I also like as dumb as this is, um, and we'll definitely eventually talk about how we feel about Beastie Boys in in Star Trek two thousand nine. But I really like the fact that he um, really wants his favorite song about going into space to play because um, a it was just fun hearing a, like a. I think this is the first example, um, and I, I, and actually there was a lot of fight about whether this song should be in the movie because I, this is the first example of a like non-classical composer music being in anything Star Trek. Yeah, well, I do yeah. like that it's um, brief as well. Like they do it, it's loud, it's kind of like a funny moment, but then you know, fifteen twenty seconds in a play, and they're like, "Hey, can you turn that off?" And we can go back to the movie now. <laughs> yeah, you know what it reminds me of is. Um, in Ash vs. Evil Dead, I would get fucking ex- so pumped when Deep Purple would come on because that's just Ash, like, who's this dude who's just stuck in the late 70s? <laughs> um, get absolutely pumped about classic rock. And so I would get pumped about classic rock because Bruce Campbell is chugging a beer and, and blasting Deep Purple. In a similar yeah. sense, I would get pumped about James Cromwell blasting Foghat or whatever. Steppenwolf. Uh, Steppenwolf. He, he plays a lot. He plays a lot of classic rock in the movie. It's not all. Isn't the is Oogie Boogie is that's Roy yeah, Orbison, Orbison, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, that's definitely Roy, Roy Orbison. It's funny that that would be the Roy Orbison song they would he would share. Cheaper, uh, much cheaper. <laughs> yeah, I mean like, it's whatever's on that jukebox. In my you, like, yeah, that's you, true. You got it or uh, in dreams. <laughs> Like, neither of those. Like, something that, like, Roy Orbison, I think, to me, genuinely had the best male singing voice of all time that, well, I, that I've ever heard on record. It would be funny and if, he like... he chooses o- Oogie Boogie. Yeah, but, whatever. like, as a character thing, like, Cochran just really likes Oogie Boogie. <laughs> yeah, he just likes, yeah, he that, just likes that like, uh, 1950s diners. That's where he goes to eat every night. Um, and even though it's just kind of for laughs, I do, like... I like when just because of their history and everything else, like it is fun to see Riker show up at this bar as they're trying to do a search. And there's Troy just fucking wasted, um, like and trying to describe what's going on. Like it's, it's obviously because li- they're exes, right? Yeah, they are. Oh, yeah. And they're he's hardcore. just like and he's just like he's kind of like enjoying the fact that she's drunk and trying to continue on with the mission. He's just like, maybe go to bed. We'll talk about this tomorrow. <laughs> but yeah, but then also like frustrated about like how he's not able to pull out. I love, there's a head nod that right, that uh, Frank's does there where both uh, he's, cause he's pulled out the cord of the jukebox 
and is trying to talk to Troy. And it, there's a this great little bit of physical understated comedy where he looks over at Troy as she passes out and then turns back to because the music strikes back up again and Cromwell's dancing and just the look of utter defeat on his face um, after being somewhat amused by the situation is um, – but also, like, utter defeat comedically. Like, oh, well, this isn't going to go well. So what's um, what's the – what happened to Frakes after the show and the movies? Because, like, he's someone who is, like, such a talented and charming presence. It feels like he should have been – Well, directing well, he directing director. movies famously. he's a great yeah. director. But, like, where, why is his face not on camera more other than that Unsolved Mysteries style show? Uh, Beyond Belief Factor Fiction yeah. when he did that, that, which was great. Yeah, and he also did a lot of narration for, like, a bunch of UFO shows and stuff like that on the Sci-Fi yeah. Channel. He kept directing. Um, he did, I mean, Clock Stoppers and, like, Thunderbirds. And, a for- unfortunately, like, a lot of, like – middle budget movies that just were extremely unsuccessful and he does star trek insurrection and i think now he's mostly a tv director yeah and doing a lot of the newer trek stuff too like picard and discovery directing a lot of it's nice that he got to stay in the mix Mm because usually they would just like oh yeah for a 24 year old director who had a really cool short yeah no he directed uh yeah so he i guess he directed a couple of these librarian those tnt like indiana jones movies for uh two of the librarian movies but he directed deep space nine voyager episodes roswell episodes like you look at his burn notice ncis like that's all like that's all like good good work though like it seems sad that he didn't get to make like a big sci-fi movie on this scale again but like that's all good work for a director, right? You yeah, I'm looking like TV wise. If, he, if he's showrunners get to do all the the shitty work, he basically gets to come in, meet all the actors, uh, understand their characters a little bit, and then make sure that like every scene is 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 executed as well as he can. And if it's not, it doesn't ever reflect poorly on him. Yeah, but honestly, other, otherwise, of, uh, yeah, he's doing of a Star lot Trek. Of vo- he's doing voice work. Yeah, I, I can't really think of any other acting things really after Star Trek for. No, vo- it's vo- it's re- it's really voice work. Like as I'm looking here, it's like he's he plays a great adult. voice. It's yeah, just, he's he, really he hot. plays adult Vin. So it just feels it just feels wrong because he's hot, you know? Like he should be on camera because he's. Hot. I mean, I re- I always really liked him, and we talked about how like three of the Star Trek uh, leads, uh, next generation leads, are on gargoyles. But he's the main villain in Gargoyles now. I always really liked him in that. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, I watched Gargoyles when I was I was a youngin. Um, I watched Gargoyles whatever twenty years before I'd ever seen an episode of Star Trek. But yeah, Marina Citrus and Michael Dorn are also uh, regulars on the show. Cool. Which is fun. Can we talk about before we move on to like you know uh, sort of uh, end game stuff? Uh, can we talk? About, I think we got to talk a little bit about the Queen and the yes, the, the data Queen stuff, Alice Kriege. Yeah. yeah, because Alice Kriege is like in the past year or two become one of my most uh, treasured actors because I watched all of Deadwood, which she was in, um, and then I realized I've seen her in everything. And she's always getting the best roles in creepy horror stuff that I watch. Yeah. So in this, she's the Borg queen and she's supposed to be sort of balancing like a sensuality with the horror of what the Borg is. So like all of her pipes and shit are on the back of her head. However, her face and her like 
uh, decolletage is all untouched, which was like clearly a conscious choice, not just by the designers, but like it feeds into the idea that the Borg were like, or she was like, this is how I want my body to be designed because I need to be sort of a, a, a face a face for the Borg. And like after this, she went on, she was, it looks like she was in Voyager. She was in one of the Star Trek video games. All the Christmas Prince movies. And then, yes, she was in, she was a creepy lady. Yeah, she was, she was in the Christmas Prince movies, just playing the regular old queen and is somehow not a villain in those <laughs> movies. Serious yeah. ways. She's in uh, Silent Hills. She plays, um, she plays, uh, I'm trying to remember the character's name, but it's essentially like a, yeah, an evil queen in the cult. Um, she's in, uh, she plays the evil witch in, um, Hansel and Gretel from a couple, or Gretel and Hansel, I should say, from a couple years yeah, ago. Yeah, she's good in that too. And she just kind of has, like, she's becoming one of my favorite actors because she just kind of, like, gets to come in, play the, like, creepy old witch but get to have some 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 complexity to her character like she does in she's the best part of Sleepwalkers the 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 crappy Mick Garris Stephen King movie um she's obviously the best part of that because she's she's this like incestuous cat mom matriarchal queen like figure in that as well and like just the 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 way that she has in her her career she's been able to navigate sort of um I'm going to play a villain. I'm going to play a, a, a villain in like all sorts of genre works, but I'm going to add complexity and layers to the villainy so that I don't feel like I'm in a, a I'm in a, a video game. Like I don't feel like I'm like, ah, yes, I'm the person that's going to punch the power troopers. I'm or power rangers. I'm Rita Repulsa. Like she purposefully avoids yeah. that stuff. She comes at this stuff with, from a very human angle. And you can read that really well in her character as the Borg queen. However, I, I don't think like you have to necessarily defend the character to defend the performance. Yeah, she's really good in it. It just is a matter of like uh Borg Queen wants a husband is not like the greatest Borg plot yeah, for a villain. Yeah. That feels like, and a, like it feels like a leftover Klingon plot, right? Yeah, but even then like the, the like the when Picard's like you wanted an equal. That's why I was Lacutus. You wanted a best you want a best friend cuz these are all drones. And it's like, okay, wait. We've totally lost the thread somewhere around here like um I yeah, it's uh, yeah, her like her motivations not not great. Uh, the scenes are good. I like all the stuff with her and Data. I like the idea of the only way to tempt Data is because uh, at this point he has emotions. He has the chip. Is like, well, what you don't have. Yeah, so I like that they because Data already has the cybernetic part, right? Like, so for most life forms that they assimilate. They add cybernetics to a biological shell. And I love for Data that they essentially even like do it in the same thing. Like he's got the one eye, you know, at the end where they've where they've taken him and they've, uh, you know, stitched on uh, biological components to uh, a cybernetic shell, which obviously it probably isn't the first time it's happened, too, because they've talked about how they've like adapted all forms of life cybernetic. Which, by the way, artificial. side note on this, something I kind of wish 
had been seen uh, from the Borg is that, you know, they, they've conquered thousands of species and everything, but all we ever see is just, like, humanoid Borg, more or less. There's no, like, Gleekclop Borgs of, like, weird species. Yeah, which, they, I mean, they claim to have. Um, so, uh, Peter, I forget if we ever talked about this, but the idea... One of the kind of retcons, it's not even really a retcon, but a connection that has been made is that um, uh, V'ger from Star Trek The Motion Picture was a Borg probe that they sent. Yeah, that was something I was going to ask about because, uh, yeah, yeah, from Voyager, V'ger is that like, what was the connection there from the original motion picture? Because the idea like didn't didn't. Well, the idea was that this ran into an alien life form and they. They they um, took it into their collective and then they sent it back to, you know, basically assimilate or make contact with the rest of the planet. And it got lost in the Delta Quadrant. Like That's what they say in that movie. So the idea is, is that our space probe, they assimilated and sent back. Interesting. So it was sort of like a virus from a Borg born virus. Not a board-born virus, but, like, in the fact that they assimilate – like, to Marcus's point, we don't see it much, but that they uh, took our space probe and assimilated it into their collective and then sent it back. Oh. Interesting. Yeah, because cause the V'ger thing does d- – did feel akin to this, and so I had a note about that, but I, I didn't know that that was, like, official canon. It, I don't know if I it's think a, it is official. Is it official or – because wasn't it wasn't like, it uh more like a wasn't that in a novelization or something where that kind of came up i'm kind of i'm kind of looking um yeah there's got to be a v'ger page on like the star trek wiki right well that's that's exactly where i'm looking but i i believe it was in the chronology memory which is official that's where i'm at right now is a massive entity um, one of the extraordinary according to the writers of the star trek chronology uh, Gene Roddenberry speculated that the planet encountered by Voyager may have been the Borg homeworld. And then there's a few other references to it through that. Man, that, that makes sense considering V'ger built that entire planet in a very Borg-like fashion, right? That was the whole thing, yeah. Uh, um, so it was further developed in the William Shatner novel The Return, where Spock's mind where Spock's mind meld with V'ger not only protected Spock from being assimilated, since the Borg collective was already present in Spock's mind, since the Borg assumed he was already one of them, but provided the Federation with the coordinates of the Borg homeworld for the final attack. It may also be significant that Spock, when referring to V'ger, says resistance would be futile. Interesting. Set during to uh, oh, there's an and there's a novel. So there's a lot of things that like no one's ever said this is a thing, but there's a lot of otherwise things that reference it as. So it's you know I, I like it just thematically because I think that that's that's somewhat interesting without yeah. being like too fan theory. But um, yeah, it's it's good. I think the last thing that's just worth talking about on the whole, uh, I think we talked a lot about the Picard stuff, but. Uh, he does – I mean, I, I do think that when he gets accused of being a Captain Aham who's been on revenge, even though, like, I think I have trouble with the the scene in the broad scope of Picard as a character and a lot of other things, I do fucking really love that scene as it's acted. Like, I think the moment itself where he's kind of being a dick and everyone's like, the ship is gone. Let's blow up the ship. Let's kill the Borg. 
let's get to the planet and he's like we stay well he's not being picard there but he's being patrick stewart actor and getting to like have some fun and it's it's fun to see him enjoying and having fun like that with the character even though it's not the the character the line must be drawn here (laughs) i will make them pay it, it feels like a scene that like if they had gotten to redo it a couple times could be an all-timer for truck history um but like it no, works two takes. like it's, it's one of the better scenes in the in the movie but frakes was like you know um because yeah. like i imagine frakes being like you want us to reset that sugar glass with all the fake <laughs> enterprise models sorry patrick you get one yeah you get one chuck okay as a fun little touch though i do like that uh the ship that breaks is the enterprise d and the saucer gets separated yeah i thought that's what they were i that okay so like it, it it's it's one of those things that it's easter egg leading into bad foreshadowing because i was like oh i thought they were just gonna put everyone in the saucer and oh no it's not they don't have a saucer in this one this one doesn't separate it's not foreshadowing that's a step back i know know how peter i know you love the saucer the saucer is not a thing it was mind-blowing because i watched like whatever 10 to 20 episodes of the original series and then all of a sudden it was like it's like, wait, hold on. <laughs> this thing. Well, is no, like it's only ships? it's only in the Galaxy class ship that can. You know, the Sovereign class does not separate saucer. It's a it's it is not a foreshadow. Right, it's a Star reference Trek to Tom, how. Sorry, this is over. <laughs> it's a well, reference I, to how I, I'm uh, a one issue voter when it comes to Star Trek, and it's well, don't worry, you only have. Off. Uh, but it is a reference to obviously how the Enterprise D did meet its fate because that's the that's the shit. Your Easter eggs are cute, but it just makes me feel like it's foreshadowing to a thing. Uh, that I, I mean, that's ultimately the understanding of the fucking uh, output of the ship. I mean, here's the thing about Easter eggs, right? And I think this actually can go to some wrap up thoughts. And I do want to talk about where the board go after this really quick. But um, you know, I I think that's ultimately the problem. Like this movie exists side by side with star trek but doesn't quite feel star trek and the way it relates to it is it has a lot of you know references to star trek everything from zephyrin cochran to the borg to lacutus to the all those little moments but like there's a reason why i think as a whole like do you remember when you used to first buy dvds and you would go to like ign when they would come out you'd find that some of these dvds contained easter eggs like if you hit back on a menu you could find a special feature that wasn't that wasn't even advertised on it and how cool that was. And then by the time even like a couple years later where you got the Memento DVD where the only way to fucking watch the movie was to understand how to use Easter eggs, you're like, all right, these are stupid. And now now when now when they do Easter eggs in movies or stuff like that, you're just like eye rolling about how like i get it you're including references and this this predates all of that but it is the first movie where it's like the thing we're going to give to the fans is not a continuation of the characters or a true building on the series the the thing we're going to give to the fans is letting you know that you can walk out of the movie that you got things that your star- your non-watching Star Trek friends didn't get. Like whether it's the – that guy's on Voyager or that that other guy's also on Voyager or this is because of this. And um, – but not in a way that matters to anything. It just – it matters to trying to thread the needle be- between a big blockbuster action movie 
and a Star Trek movie, and it and it fails, I think, at that. Like it fails at being a good Star Trek movie and a good and and then separately, it, I think it fails at being a good fully developed blockbuster because it it still is existing within that that Star Trek universe and with a Star Trek TV director and stuff like that. As much as I love Frank, so you end up essentially getting that three and a half four star Star Trek movie where. It doesn't succeed on its own terms, and it also doesn't succeed as something that is a love letter to a series that you're now making movies off of. But it at least has good actors and interesting moments and, and uh, you know, the occasional good line or delivery or joke enough to still make it an, uh, 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 not a waste of time as a watch, but not something that has... Uh, anything approaching the highs of the Next Generation series, the original series movies, or even like specific moments of like Picard first running into Kirk in Generations or or uh, that feeling of like sadness and loss when, you know, Picard finds out his nephew dies in that movie. Like Generations doesn't hit the highs of a lot of the previous movies either. But it has moments like that. And I just – I struggle to find the moment in this movie that, that at least rises to this is a important Star Trek moment well, as opposed to just that was a cool – They thing. have a couple that they try for but most of them don't work because even like the scene between Picard and Worf where – you know, he's going off on everyone and calls him a coward and stuff and then comes back and is like, you're, you're the bravest man. It, it falls so flat. Like, it just doesn't really work. Yeah, we know. Yeah, we know Picard doesn't think Ward is a coward. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, he's just being an asshole. And th- that was never – like, there's just so many moments like that where, like, they're – at best, you can say they're they're slightly entertaining moments in a movie. But they don't feel like that's a fucking Star Trek moment or a moment for these – and that Star Trek moment could be important to the – the series or the characters or anything. And ultimately at the end of the day, like nothing here means anything, right? Like say what you will about generations at the end of it. That's the end of Kirk. Like that has stayed the case for this particular like timeline of the, of the series. Also the end of the enterprise D as well. And, and the end of the enterprise D and it, you know, uh, it's Picard and data gets emotions. Picard, has to you know is learning to accept the fact that he is he's aging as well and this one literally nothing comes of it right like every they put back everything the way it was the borg aren't destroyed because it's still just a ship um and even the queen uh, again i haven't seen voyager i know the queen comes back in voyager my guess is i think i remember reading something that like well yeah she's still connected to the whole collective so they can make a new queen well yeah because also um because alice uh creek does come back uh for i believe just the season finale or the series finale of voyager um but i think there is a different board queen and uh at least one other episode of voyager played by someone else so there you know could potentially be multiple board queens that they just make a new one yeah because yeah my understanding and again i could be unbelievable (laughs) yeah so again it's again it's 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 a it's a fine watch i definitely put it in the star trek three range where it's like there's some good stuff there's some 
but it's it's not a it's not uh it's it doesn't hit any of the the highs. It, I, I it would watch def- three again more um more uh sooner than this one yeah no i think i'd like three more than this one as well purely no i agree lloyd and the aesthetics of the movie like i think it's a more successful movie but i understand what you're saying Mm -hmm. like oh it's just kind of a dumb action movie in star trek universe yeah well and also i do think that this one benefits in retrospect because the next two are so fucking bad yeah that like that like this Don't one relative. does that does seem like a high point in comparison. I also yeah, think like, I got a big that nostalgia. Stepped on my toe yeah, <laughs> because afterwards you shot me in the face. Yeah, but I think I have a big nostalgia kick on this one. Like I said in the beginning, because it is yeah. the first one I saw in theaters as I was getting really into Star Trek and stuff. So I think I kind of always give it a pass, but. It's it's just kind of fun for me, and it does have some good moments stuff. It also has a lot of stuff that's really stupid, doesn't make any sense, and doesn't really work character-wise. But, you know, again, it's kind of fun to do some Borg stuff. I do like a lot of, you know, the, the special effects with the Borg and doing a little bit more yeah. with them. And that's fun to watch. But, yeah, I mean, it's kind of more or less kind of a forgettable dumb action movie, but it's not as bad as the series gets. <laughs> Before it thankfully picks its, I'm I'm glad that we get to end on both. Uh, we 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 have two very good movies left in us on this on this journey. Uh, because Beyond rules. Yeah, Beyond's awesome. And Beyond is actually like I think what what ironically Insurrection tried to do. Like you're going to need like, to dangle the carrot of uh, Galaxy Quest and our you know Jeffrey Combs episodes and such in front of me uh, once we get to Into Darkness because well here's the good news, Peter. Mom, yeah, I hate um, that fucking movie. It was so bad I didn't so see Beyond long. in theaters. Hold on, but Beyond Beyond movie. comes Beyond comes after Into Darkness. We get to end on an extremely high note. Um, that is probably the best version of let's make a movie size TV episode, oh. which they try to do in the next Also, episode. another thing about First Contact, less than two hours long. Pretty nice. Yeah. God, can you imagine back in the day, like, <laughs> giant blockbuster franchise movie? You think 100 minutes? Yeah, that's how long Ghostbusters was. <laughs> I push it. Uh, anyway, two things I want to note. Uh, and let's uh, uh, and then I want to get Peter's final thoughts on this. So where do the board go after this? Both things I haven't seen. But uh, again, we mentioned Voyager is in the Delta Quadrant. They become the big bad, as I understand it, the back half of that series. Yeah, where, yeah. The later uh, seasons, pretty much after Seven of Nine becomes a, a character. And then so you have them as kind of the villains. And then mostly you do kind of like one of the only things you can do with Borgs as characters going on, like being not just sporadic characters, which is the Seven of Nine thing, like the Hugh thing, you know, a Borg drone finding their humanity again or finding their individuality yep. again. Um, which, uh, I don't know. It, it works sometimes. Seven of Nine's a pretty good character. Yeah, I, I, I know people like Seven of Nine as a character. I know she's on Picard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm definitely like... I One of these days, I would love to go through the back half of Voyager, or at the very least, I've been tempted to follow one of those, like, here are some episodes you should watch before you should watch Picard, and kind of get through, like, the, uh, in the same way I'm shirping uh, Peter through Star Trek in general, like, if you want to know the Borg arc, which is important, the Voyager Borg arc, which is important for Picard, watch these episodes. And then, secondarily, um, 
the there is a, almost a proper sequel to this movie that I've read about in Called Regeneration that was on Enterprise in the later seasons where they find all of the the Borg wreckage of the sphere on Earth and have to deal with that in a way that I'm unsure of. I also know that if there had been a Star Trek Enterprise season five, the Borg were going to be the primary antagonist, which I think, you know, would have been I, I don't know where that fits in everything. Like I said, I, I know it's I know it's uh, so many hours of television and, and movies over 40, 50 years and stuff like that. But I mean, the Borg being known 200 years before Picard first encounters them with Q feels a little bit off, although I'm sure they have some explanation yeah. for, uh, for But there are stuff some good but, Voyager episodes uh, with the Borg, and especially getting a little bit further with them as far as diplomacy and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, just because, you know, obviously Voyager being out in the Delta Quadrant all alone, having to, like, get through Borg space and stuff like that, but having to find things that they can offer the Borg in order to get by without incident, uh, including helping because there's, like, a, a species, what, a, A427, that they cannot assimilate, um, but oh, and it's, like, can... <laughs> can attack and kill the Borg. So uh, the Voyager crew basically, I believe, finds a way to take out that species, like how, how to hurt them, uh, and uses that as kind of leverage and just finding ways to have to, you know, be more diplomatic with them instead of just battle episodes. Yeah, that is that's super interesting. I I, I, I remember I started a, a gap-filling Voyager run uh, like four or five years ago where I like – I think I got through all of the episodes in the second season I hadn't seen when I would watch it sporadically when it aired. And uh, I've been I've been planning to push through. I did that with Deep Space Nine. I didn't – I watched Deep Space Nine sporadically uh, and then like I think when they released all the season sets, mm-hmm. I bought them all. I will say Voyager probably has the strongest first season – out of any of like the the later Trek seasons, I, I think the first three seasons of Voyager before Seven and Nine comes on are all really strong, and it gets a little more iffy after Seven and Nine joins. But I still like Seven and Nine. I really like. I mean, I still remember that episode, that two part episode that I watched on air where they go back to nineties Earth. Like there was always mm-hmm. some good stuff in there, but it just never, it, it never fully clicked. And I think. Um, it's because um, I think Voyager has. I mean, this is like tied with Enterprise. Never mind. Enterprise is one hundred percent the worst. But I think Voyager has like a bad cast overall, mm. and I think that's true of Enterprise too. And Deep Space not like the rest of these shows all have fucking killer casts. And and um, you know, like Deep Space Nine is definitely different than Patrick Stewart, but Avery Brooks rules, Colmini rules, yeah. like Nana Visitor rules, like. Um, I I never got that. I don't know who's who's good on Voyager. Chakotay? Okay, okay. Well, he's not bad. He just doesn't he probably gets shortchanged the most uh other than maybe, you know, Harry Kim, uh who who's also not great. But uh Picard, Robert Picardo as the doctor, I think is probably one of the he, best he, characters him on the show. And- 
Um, Tom Paris does kind of suck, but he he grows on you a little, or grew on me a little bit, but he's probably the most annoying character. Um, But I I don't know. Like, I do like Bolana quite a bit. Um, I like Neelix more than I remembered from when I was younger. Like, I actually started to care about the characters more. I like Janeway a lot uh, as a captain. Like, I I don't know. Like, it it has some decent character. Tuvok is good as well, but again, it takes a while before you really get more Tuvok-centric episodes. Uh, the best part about Voyager, and this is the last thing I'll say, I want Peter to give final thoughts and we'll talk about what we're doing next time, is um, the best part about Voyager and Tuvok is um, the Little Donnie episode of Upright Citizens Brigade, which is, of course, the episode about the boy who was born with a massive horse dick. <laughs> Tup- Tuvok is never going home. And his whole thing is that he has a Star Trek Voyager character, an <laughs> action figure of Tuvok, and all he says is, Tuvok got to go home! <laughs> and then he like has a breakdown mid-episode because he's convinced that Tuvok will never go, go home. That and series... it's the greatest little detail to my favorite Upright Citizens Brigade episode. That is That, that series has uh, is one of those, those ones like Wonder Shows in that exists within my heart and it's just going to be coddled and, and kept there in a warm place forever and I'm not going to share with other people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's when uh, that's that was the season one finale where they, they didn't do a it was like all their their season finales were just the one concept that they had teased throughout the entire season did a full episode that is my favorite episode and then my favorite sketch is santa with the laser pointer trying to get santa liqueur but anyway peter what's your what's your final take on this one this one um yeah, I, I, I think uh, Frakes, while very hot, was not up to the task of directing what is essentially an action-focused uh Frakes tanks! Variety! <laughs> um, however, um, because the characters were so developed and there was so much legwork done in, uh, you know, before this movie was produced, um, it gets to benefit from that. So it still gets my my heart a little bit. It, it, it still it still works for me. It's just a movie that I probably will not revisit. Um, and uh, I think that there's lots of very cool classic scenes in this that I think kind of rule like the whole Picard Tommy gunning down some Borg in the middle of like a speakeasy club and and doing the, the Sylvester Stallone Rambo yell while he's doing it like that rules. Oh, Worf tying a hole in his spacesuit with a, a Borg arm that he cut off. That was pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, that that's good. Yeah. And and it's and it's uh it, it, there's lots of like awesome little scripting moments. Um yeah, Worf and Data basically just tear Borg apart once they run out of uh, uh, you know phaser settings that will kill them. Like that stuff is all really cool. It's just that it's not a well-directed movie. It's not well choreographed. The 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 the, the, the there's something here where like the stiffness of the show, the theatrical stiffness of the show is very charming at times. And like, I find I find it very comforting. But when you take the step up into the big leagues of movies, I expect something a little bit higher than TV melodrama. And it's not saying that, uh, you know, TNG is, is some low beast that needs to be like um, treated uh, with, you know, a lower set of expectations. It's just the nature of sort of long-running melodramatic sci-fi 
melodramatic genre TV. I hold the same standards to like Buffy. Um, and I don't hold them to those standards because that's, um, me having lower expectations. I hold them to those standards because that's the standards they set. (laughs) Um, whereas with this, it's a, it's a, I'm comparing it to action films and sci-fi films of the, of the nineties. And it just doesn't, it doesn't scratch that itch, man. Like that's, that's the, the bottom line here is it, is it doesn't quite work as an action movie. It has some sweet humanist moments that that touch on what I love about Star Trek, but it doesn't touch on what I like. It doesn't touch. It doesn't become an, a Star Trek episode just because of that. Um, that I that I, that I'm particularly attached to. Um, there's some really great like Cronenbergy effects on the Borg Queen that I think is really cool and creepy, and like that shows yeah. the budget. Um, that's something that I think like is indispensable. But like every fight scene with the Borg is so awkward. Like there's no sense of place. There's no sense of time. I have no idea where anybody is. I have no idea what the layout of this fight is. It's confusing in a way that's very bad. Um, but yeah, it, it's. Uh, but yet at the end of the day, like I like spending more time with these characters. I would just rather spend more time on a new adventure in 42 minutes or whatever than I would uh, in this. And, and I guess my final thought is whenever Kirk. Oh, sorry. My final thought is whenever Picard says engage, uh, I've never noticed this before, but uh, they hand him a Nokia N-Gage, uh, the gaming console dash cell phone. And I'm guessing he just does that because he's saying engage to like the warp, you know, the, like kick in the warp drive. And it takes a minute or two for them to get there. And he wants a video game to play um, between where he is and where he's going. So that's just like a cool yeah. little fan fan that's theory can't, that's that's definitely what if he says engage picture data walking up and handing him a nokia engage um i do like though that they they try to turn both of the borg's catchphrase into reverse action lines like uh where where uh Assimilate i mean this. i don't I don't really like it. Both are awkward and forced and it's a bad idea, but they're like, well, it's an action movie. We need our, like, it's been revoked. And so, yeah, the, it's something like this. And then also like data, data pauses before he lets out the gas. Resistance is futile. Like, okay, dude, you ate all of that line and you didn't have time to do that. So not a great not a great idea anyways so next week or next whenever the next episode airs next episode next time next time on star trek we are covering maybe my biggest star trek disappointment in my life which was star trek insurrection which i definitely saw twice in theaters in like a star wars episode one type way like was this this got this isn't bad right like i like i love star trek it can't be Um, this this could, couldn't have been that bad um, where I kept expecting it to get bigger and it somehow kept getting smaller in a weird way. Um, and uh, but we are we are pairing it with um, the the episode. That's what one thing I really don't like about Star Trek Insurrection is that the whole log line is it's like, oh, but here's what we're doing. We did the big Borg stuff. We're going to do a feature length star trek style episode and then they literally do a star trek style episode around one of the better episodes of the series which we are pairing it with which is who watches the watchers 
which covers besides the living forever nonsense uh, covers the, uh, all the interesting themes uh, a million times better uh, than Star Trek Insurrection. So, Peter, the good the good news is you get to watch a really good Star Trek The Next Generation episode. Um, bad news is you have to watch Star Trek Insurrection. Uh, maybe we'll just spend more time talking about the TV show than the movie. How's that sound? Well, on the bright side, for what I imagine is going to be a bad, uh, bad movie episode, we won't talk for three and a half hours. But this was so much fun. Marcus, thank you. Uh, you're a lovely human being. No one's ever said anything bad about you. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk track with us. And definitely, um, as we do, like we said, we're going to continue this in some format uh, sporadically for as long as we keep podcasting. So I hope you come back on and talk more track with us. In the future. Anytime, guys. Appreciate it. Been wanting to do this show with you guys for quite a while. Literally, this specific show, which we originally were, were going to record in July. Oh, wow. Was it that long ago? Yeah. I mean, time has no meaning in quarantine, but yeah. Yeah, it might as well have been yesterday. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, with that, uh, guys, it's bedtime. And I got to tell you about my sleep. Resistance is futile. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to we love to watch if you made it to the end hopefully you liked what you heard today and if you'd like to hear more please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch and if you can chip in a few bucks that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward uh it wasn't an implicit threat by peter he just didn't know how to say it but either way we'll continue to make more but it would be helpful uh, as we explained to our loved ones where all our money is going which is all on server space uh <laughs> if you can't <laughs> uh if you don't have a few bucks to chip in we totally understand and you want to support the show Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches. Peter and Aaron. <laughs>